0: We all know about punting categories at draft, but what about punting categories during the season? I'll ask Ariel Cohen about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. (laughs) And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 17th. It's show number 23 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotoballer, Rotographs, and the Beat the Shift podcast, discussing in-season category punting, in-season projecting, when to release an IL player, the fun of actuarial science and his boons and banes. We'll have our market watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries to Ozzie Albies, Walker Bueller, Yadier Molina, and Steven Strasburg. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including goings and comings for Jeremy Pena, Jaron Duran, Drew Rasmussen, and Sonny Gray. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at San Diego second baseman Esturi Ruiz. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about my upcoming Facts and Flukes Spotlight analysis of Toronto right-handed starter Jose Barrios. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotoballer, Rotographs, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Ariel, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me once again, Patrick, and hope you're well.
0: I'm very well. Thank you very much. Uh, It's beautiful weather here, although a little muggy in Waterloo, Ontario. But muggy summers, I guess, are no strange phenomenon for you.
2: Yeah, um, I I played a couple of softball games uh, the past couple of days, and there was one night on Monday where it was absolutely humid, uh and, and, and there was tons of bugs. We play on, on a field that's close to the water. It was bug infested, it was humid. After the first inning, I was dripping sweat. So uh yeah, I definitely noticed that here in New York.
0: I've been to New York in the summer. It's it's pretty muggy. I can testify to that. I noticed in an online biography that you're in both the Casualty Actuarial Society and the Society of Actuaries, and I wanna know how much fun one guy can have.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh so, uh, just for clarity, uh, you know there are many different types of actuaries. Actuary is an insurance professional who you know talks about the setting of rates and stuff like that for insurance companies. Um, so, an actuary, there's four main fields of actuaries. There's life and health. There's pension. There's uh, property and casualty. Uh, so, I, I do in my career, I do the property and casualty part, but I'm also certified for life. There was a brief window where. Uh, I didn't have to do much else, but I did a little bit of extra uh, so that the life, the life insurance actuaries accepted me into their society. So I happen to have both designations. There aren't that many people who have them, but in practice, I, I, I am the casualty actuarial society. That's really the, the one that I ascribe to.
0: We'll talk about sports gambling later, but basically, what you guys are is odds makers uh, betting uh, the risk of one thing happening versus another, and trying to price it accordingly so that uh, the the losers pay the winners and the winners pay the house.
2: Well, not just uh, not just setting the odds, but I'm also uh, unloading the risk. I mean, I'm helping my company decide how much risk to unload, and of course, I'm making sure that the price is good. And you know, how how high a deductible? How much should I lay off? It's all fun things that come into risk, and uh, uh, it's fun for me. I don't know, I don't know about for you there.
0: Well, it, it's interesting to me. I remember once years ago when we were doing uh, Tout Wars in New York City, and you and I ended up sitting at a table in uh, – Foley's bar now defunct, unfortunately, but uh, I remember we must have talked for an hour about the ins and outs of actuarial science and how it applies to fantasy baseball and risk setting and and risk management and all of those kinds of things. And it's struck me at the time that the skill set of actuarial science is a very tight fit for the skill set of being an effective fantasy baseball player and I assume a projections manager as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, there's so many people who uh, who analyze fantasy baseball and maybe they know the players better than I do and they keep track of situations. I mean, my mark on the industry is to take the principles that I have of actuarial and insurance with risk management and pricing and uh, risk-adjusted pricing and, and all that and apply it to fantasy baseball. So I make my edge on the mathematics of it. Uh, and in all my writings and all the podcasts, I try to use what I'm an expert in to help me with the fantasy baseball. I think that's a, a, it's a good angle to, to do and it's not exactly the angle that everybody else takes, but I guess that's what makes me unique here.
0: It oh, was somewhat unique. I can remember back in the day, uh, actually at Foley's one time talking to another guy, this was before I had ever met you, and uh, he was an actuary as well, and he's a very successful fantasy baseball manager in his own right, and uh, I don't know that he wants his name mentioned, so I won't, but he's well known in the industry, and that was his background. He was in actuarial science, and he said it just seemed to be a real good fit for, for this particular game.
2: Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about, the the fantasy Sherpa. And uh, I do see him at actuarial conferences, so uh, I I can confer.
0: You mentioned that you're uh, playing softball. Uh, What's the league that you play in?
2: I play in a bunch of leagues, Uh, Sunday league, a Monday league, a Tuesday league, a Wednesday league. Uh, Different variety. There's there's different levels. Uh, Some are team leagues. Some are draft leagues. Some are local. Some I drive to. Um, I run most of those leagues. Uh, I just like playing, and, uh, you know, I'm, 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 get, I'm almost 40, uh, but uh, my, my philosophy is play as long as I can and enjoy, and I, I'm not one of those guys who can go to a gym and lift weights or run a treadmill and just run. It's too boring for me. I, I need some kind of strategy, some kind of thinking, so playing softball, and I'm not the most athletic person, but at least there's a goal, there's a strategy. Do I pitch do i throw a ball do i throw a curveball do i throw a changeup, a fastball uh should i send the runner you know it's involved plus it's social right i'm socializing with all my teammates and a different team every single night of the week so i I just like it for me for exercise for social and hey i love i love baseball
0: every so often you post on twitter some video of you smoking a fastball by some overmatched hitter Uh, so let's talk metrics what's your fastball velo
2: uh, not that great. Uh, I throw maybe at a 40 mile an hour, uh, fastball for softball underhand. Uh, but my, my key is my changeup is really slow. It's about 26 miles an hour. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, makes my fastball look a little faster and the changeup is a huge, huge difference. So a lot of batters simply freeze cause they don't know when it's coming and, you know, two strikes on a batter and they think they're coming another fastball straight down. And what the heck is this pitch? Uh, and it, and it moves. Uh, so, so, uh, yeah, 40 to 28, uh, 40 to 26, I
0: should say. All right. Roger Clemens is breathing a sigh of relief as we speak here, but have you ever played uh, fast pitch softball?
2: Um, no, with the with the with the windmill, no, I, I haven't. Uh, I, I play it's it's called modified. You basically can throw as fast as you want, but you can't extend your arm over your head and and whip it around. Uh, so I play the modified version. I also play high arc. My office league uh, used to be before COVID a high arc league. So that's a twelve, a six to twelve league where you know the bull has to rise six feet above the ground and a maximum of twelve feet above the ground. So that that's that slow pitch. Right? Slow I've pitch, done the yeah. slow and the yeah slow and the modified. I've never done the full fast. Uh, usually women do that. I, I haven't really seen a, a, a windmill-type league for men.
0: Well, you ought to go to Western Canada sometime or anywhere in Canada. Fast-pitch softball is a really big game still here for men. And I used to play fast-pitch when I was a kid up till about 18 or 19 years old. And uh, some of those guys were bringing it at 100 miles an hour, and that was from 46 feet, not from 60 feet. And uh, as a result, <laughs> yeah. you know, the thing about fast pitch softball is it's actually kind of boring to watch because it's so rare that there's a hit, you know, a, a game with five hits is much more uh, unusual than a no hitter. There's lots of no hitters in every level of league because the pitchers, not only can they bring that kind of cheese, but the movement they get on the ball because of the speed of it and the amount of snap that they can get on with that uh, windmill release in, in baseball, as we know, when they talk about fastball rise the fastball is not actually rising. It's just it's just being less affected by gravity as it comes down, and that's what gives it the illusion of rising. But in a fast-pitch softball, it is rising. It's literally going up. And if you've ever seen a top-notch uh, uh, fast-pitch softball pitcher, you can see them throwing a ball. It'll break upwards rather than actually just like not settling as much as it ought to. It's quite something to see, and it's impossible to hit.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think I'm that skilled to play in that type of league with my twenty six mile an hour curveball. So yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it would certainly be a difference.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Between between you and the next guy, are you a good hitter too? Are you the Shohei Otani of your leagues?
2: No, I never had power. Uh, I I uh, I used to bat five hundred in leagues. Now I'm down to like three hundred something maybe. Uh, I was never a power hitter. In fact, I have five career home runs. I just hit a homer last week. That was pretty thrilling for me. But uh, no, I'm not a power hitter. I I usually lead off, slap a hit, look for a walk. Uh, that that type of thing.
0: Little Ricky Henderson going on? Are you stealing the stealing the bases?
2: Well, they don't let me steal. Uh, no, I never had blazing speed. I used to be somewhat fast. Uh, now I'm somewhat slow. Uh, but but uh, hey, <laughs> I, I I still have the skills to get on. So I tend to to bat lead off, and uh, I just I do I do okay.
0: What uh, fantasy drafts are you playing in this year? How many and what kinds?
2: Uh, most of my leagues are, are auction style, not draft. But uh, I'm playing in a couple of industry leagues. I'm in Tat Wars, Labor, TGFBI, Raz Slam. Uh, and uh, I'm in uh, a high money league or so. And I'm in a, a bunch of home leagues. Uh, eight leagues all together.
0: What kind of high money leagues?
2: Uh, at the NFBC. Uh, I'm in the auction championship.
0: Oh, okay. How are you doing in that league?
2: So, unfortunately, that league, I'm doing the worst of all of them. I'm about maybe seventh place, somewhere in the middle. Uh, But I'm about, I think, 25 points out of the money. Um, You know, it's tough. Uh, the NFBC, there's no IL. So, if you have a lot of injuries, uh, it's tough. I bought Jacob DeGrum in the middle of spring training where he was doing fine. I mean, he, he nothing wrong. I, I thought he'd pitch. I got him for a nice discount at you know just over twenty dollars, so ah, I'm sitting pretty. And of course, you know he hasn't pitched yet, so at twenty dollars down the drain. And I've had a couple of other injuries, so uh, I find managing injuries these years are very tough, and especially with the NFBC with with no IL, extremely tough. So yeah, uh, you know, not not as good in the high money league there.
0: Well, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, roster management in various kinds of leagues with and without uh, injured lists, and uh, I think it's a, an interesting discussion to have. Uh, before we uh, wrap this up, which besides the high-money league where you could win lots of money, which of your drafts is the one you really want to do well in?
2: You know, I, I really want to do well in all of them. I, I don't really play favorites. Uh, maybe at the end of the season, the last month where you're out of one league or two, yeah, you sort of ignore them. And, you know, you, I, I think everybody does this where wherever you're in first place, second place. That's the one where you keep checking, whether it's a prestigious league, a lot of money or not, whatever you're doing well. And, oh, let's see how I'm doing in that league. Am I still on first? Am I still in second? Uh, so there you go. Um, so I, I really don't play favorites. I think that, uh, you know, the expert leagues, Tat Wars and Labor are really prestigious. Um, but, you know, Raz Slam, I'm in first place in my league. I'm um, 12th overall. So, you know, I checked that one as well. Um, I, I'm doing well in a, in a home league called GDD, which is mostly made of experts. I'm in first place. I partnered with Derek Hardy. So, uh, I, I partner that one. That one's a little bit of money in it. So, you know, hey, it's best of both worlds, experts and money. So, but I, I, I listen, they're all important to me. I, I don't want to play favorites just like my children. They're all my favorites.
0: You're playing with Derek Cardi. Gosh, it doesn't seem like anybody else in the league would have a chance. Uh, what do you two guys both <laughs> run projection systems? What do you do when you disagree? Is there a like rock paper scissors or a fist fight, or how do you guys settle your differences on uh, projection differences?
2: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it, it, I think it, it's simple on the projection side. Um, I basically take my projections. We combine them with Derek's projections, of course. Derek's projections are a part of mine as well, right? They're replicated in the ATC, but we take some kind of average um, playing time these days. Uh, Derek actually relies on on ATC for preseason playing time, so we just use my playing time, uh, and I do a combination of them, and we get we generate dollars for auction based on the combination. And you know, we're both skilled at auction, and we're you know going towards the number. Maybe there's a player that the bat really is high on that atc wasn't well that would push up my valuation and the average would settle on something higher and when i'm playing the auction and the player it says 15 dollars well i know how to bid on the 15 dollar player I, I i bid on the player I, I i sorry i bid on the dollar amount not on the player um you know I'm, I'm more disciplined like that in an auction so it's it's really easy to do that and i work very well with derek um obviously you know, there's some disagreements where you're higher on player or another, but that's the challenge of working with a team uh, with a teammate. And it's a great skill. If you haven't played a fantasy baseball league with a partner, you should definitely do that. Now that I said, the challenges there's also great advantages. I mean, you can both find players uh, and discuss a wider player pool because maybe he's focused on some batters. I'm focused on some hitters. Maybe he's not so great in closers, and I have a better pulse. So you get the best of both, best of both worlds when you work together. So uh, if you can override the challenges, uh, you, it's going to be a huge advantage, and I definitely recommend working with a partner. I partner in a league with uh, with Ruven Guy is, it, it, for most of my leagues. Uh, most of my leagues that I do is uh, partner-related, so I, I, I recommend it for everybody.
0: I do too. I, I've played with a partner and I've played without, and part of the fun of playing with a partner is you have somebody, it's usually a pretty good friend of yours anyway, and then you have something to talk about when you you know on the phone or when you're sitting down for a beer or having them over for, for dinner or something like that in addition to all the other things you have to talk about in your life, you can settle down and uh, hash out your plans for the next week. It's a, it's a really fun way of going about it. it. It imposes on you the requirement that you're willing to carve out a chunk of time each week for each of the partnerships. And you have to kind of, I think, balance that with all the other things in both your lives. So it can be, that can be a challenge. It's just finding the right amount of time in the right time slot. And, you know, when am I not pitching in softball kind of thing, or when am I not, you know, going to a play in Toronto that, you know, all of these kind of things, but in the long run, I think you're right. It's worth it. Not only because of the benefit that you get from having two heads better than one kind of thing. But also that it feels like a shared burden rather than you know some weekends where you sit down and you look at your free agent list and you go oh Evay I got a million guys to look through and I really don't feel like it you know in this I'm seventh in this league there's lots of reasons not to your partner will keep you a little more engaged.
2: Yeah, and I'll add something else. Um, When if you just did leagues by yourself, you're only aware of certain players on the the wire. You maybe do research on yours. But sometimes maybe Derek will tell me about a player and I'll look him up in another league that I'm not playing with him. And maybe I'll pick him up in a different league because he, he introduced that player to me or uh, Ruvein is telling me about a certain pitcher matchup. Well, maybe I can use it in another league, right? So you get a whole broad knowledge, not just for that league, but for all your leagues. So it it's definitely, listen, we're a fantasy community. I read articles. I, I listen to shows. The more information you have from other places, and especially direct communication, and you can talk through about the players' pitfalls and, and their highlights, it, it helps you tremendously.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from the Beat the Shift podcast and Rotoballers and Rotographs. And uh, Ariel, I have to say, I've noticed you haven't been as prolific a writer as you have been in years past. Uh, what's going on with your uh, writing output?
2: Yeah, well, the past couple of months have been a little little bit tough for me at work, uh, getting busy. Uh, I have, though, been able to maintain uh, the podcast, though. So uh, most of my work for the past two months, let's say, has been less on the writing and more on the podcast. Uh, You know, that'll change as the year goes on. My my work uh, uh, busy season is going to end on July 1st, so I'll be able to write a little bit more. Uh, listen, you know, everyone has to, uh, to do what they can. Uh, Fantasy Baseball, to me, is not my main source of income. It's not my main job. I have a full-time. I also have a family. So, uh, you know, if something goes, I, I have to relax some part, and sometimes it's uh, a little bit fewer, fewer articles or so.
0: I wanted to talk to you about in-season projections, and the first thing I noticed is you don't publish uh, rest-of-season projections, but I understand uh, that you're thinking of changing that.
2: Yeah, uh, I have been working on an ATC rest of season projection. Uh, So far, I have not published it. Uh, You know, the ATC relies on other projections and uh, not all of the panel of the preseason projections are available during the season, you know, some of them that I take are some weird Internet projections that nobody's heard of uh, and they only publish one for the year, so on and so forth. So uh, the complement of my panel is different. The credibility of a rest of season projection would be less, still good, but less. So I haven't really had the chance to put it together. And of course, there's the issue of playing time. You know, if I'm updating projections before the season start, it's on one hundred and sixty two game season. If I'm updating it January 15th or February 15th or March 15th, it's still on the same basis. Uh, But if you're updating it in the middle of the season, well, what playing time am I using? It's going to be different every single time I update. It's going to be only 130 games remaining, only 110 games remaining. So there are some things to work out with that. But I am hopefully working, uh, working out all those, and I'm hoping to release ATC Rest of Season Projections roughly around the all-star break this year, uh, which uh, will, be, will be really interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the results are and and how they how they do mid-season.
0: And when you say you're going to release it around the all-star break, will that be one and done, or will you then keep updating it for the balance of the year?
2: Yeah, so uh, what what would happen is that the rates would be updated periodically. We're talking every maybe two to three weeks it wouldn't change all that much. Uh, So it's okay to update it two to three weeks. Uh, Playing time, though, uh, obviously needs to be changed on a daily basis. That would be automated and probably prorated. So, you know, if if a team uh, plays three games in a week, then the playing time of a player would go down by three games and such. What what it would struggle with, though, is uh, injured players or players with different changing situations so there'd be a little bit of a lag of changing of about two weeks. If The player gets injured and I don't update the projection in two weeks. You might get a little bit too much playing time. So I have to work out a little bit of the kinks of how I do that. Um, you know, there's also some automation I have to work out with the, the uh, database that over at Fangraphs to see how that would work. Maybe some of the uh, portion of the, the stats that I get from Fangraphs will update automatically and flows in. So there, there are some logistics to work out, but uh, you know, that's sort of how it would work.
0: I'm curious when you start conceptualizing this kind of uh, in-season uh, projection update, are you going to include past seasons or is it going to be mostly based on the season year to date? How is the How, how much of the history do you want to incorporate in a partial season projection system?
2: So that's really the beauty of ATC in that um, – Each projection system has its own method of incorporating the in-season numbers. Uh, I know, you know, Steamer has an algorithm, for example, where, you know, it waits depending upon how long ago it is. You know, uh, games that are a half-year-old get weighted a certain way. Games that are a year old get weighted a certain way. And the way it works for Steamer, pretty much at the end of the year, like if you take the the Steamer rest-of-season projections and you go on the last day of the season – uh, if you just turn on a switch and say, you know what, instead of one game to go, make it 162 games, that's pretty much the steamer projections for the following year. Right. Um, some other projections might do something differently. They might wait uh, uh, in season a certain other amount, uh, you know, but ATC incorporates all of those. And because it does, it uh, it, it shows the different varieties of how you can incorporate the in season projection. So uh, it, it's all the answer. The short answer is it's all inclusive. Uh, of the ATC methodology,
0: and the flip side of that, Ariel seems to be: we know that if you take a projection on f- just before opening day, that we expect that the projection will be accurate over the full run of 162 games, which is a fairly long period. As you know, it's 650 plate appearances probably something on the order of 2,500 pitches seen or thrown, more thrown probably for starting pitchers. So you have a good long time for the projection to bear out for the, for the highs and loans to even themselves out. But if you're putting a projection out there on August 1st, now you have a, a two month opportunity for the projection to be correct or incorrect, which means you're much more The projection itself is subject to much more variation between highs and lows because we understand that there's going to be certain times when a pitcher or hitter has a run of success and there's not enough time left in the season to offset the success with failure because he goes out on a two-month high or a two-month low, and that's that.
2: Yeah, no, but but that's true of, of any short projection, um, and of course the term is sample size. Uh, when we had the 2020 season and ATC had to project the 60 game season, uh, yeah, I, I knew in, in going into that that ATC, along with everybody else, all the other projections would not be as accurate as they had in the past, simply because a 60 game season uh, you can have more highs and valleys in rather than in you know, a 162 game season, of course. Uh, when we're talking about accuracy of projections, you're also projecting over the entire player pool. If there are 600 players to project, it's 600 times 60 games. You know, maybe, you know, you still have a decent sample size. So if you're talking about any individual player, the projections are going to vary wildly. Uh, But when you're talking about the entire player pool, there's a better sense of convergence, a better sense of accuracy. In the 2020 season, ATC, and I, I was worried. I didn't know how it w- would react in such a small sample season. Maybe it wouldn't be as good, uh, but it performed really well. ATC was still the best projection system out there, even in the small sample size. Um, and with it. I, I went Outwards that year using the ATC projections. It worked. So, um, you know, I, I think that the idea is that the ATC method works even in a small sample size because there's still enough. At w- player pool and there's still enough with the aggregation of all values across to still be meaningful
0: well at the start of the year you issue a, a set of projections as do all the other projection systems and of course during the year we understand that some of those player projections the individual projections are going to just be wrong for one reason and another usually a playing time change a guy plays poorly and is demoted or is hurt or is replaced or traded. There's all of these things that can affect playing time. And and the injuries themselves, of course, affect not only the playing time, but possibly the post-recovery performance because a guy's still a bit naggingly hurt, but he's going out there anyway kind of situation. So leaving aside playing time and injury, which we understand are obviously have effects on player projection, what other factors can affect an in-season performance relative to the projection?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, playing time within a team if you're in a different role right let's say you're a a pitcher and and you're a reliever and you get bumped from a a low leverage situation to high that would affect it if you're uh, in a lineup and you were slated to bat eighth but now you're doing great and they're batting you second that can definitely help your 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 change um if a player has a new swing maybe a market improvement that's going to be another thing that affects uh, affects your performance. What if you change teams in the middle of the season? Or what if you acquired a new player and the lineup is stronger? You're going to have more runs, more RBIs. So a lot of those factors can can affect it during the season. And it's so hard to predict, of course.
0: I think it's also sometimes pretty hard to identify because a lot of what passes for explanation of, of outlier performance is just noise. You know, the, the, uh, they'll ask a pitcher, why is it all of a sudden you're pitching so much better? And he says, well, you know, I've uh, really been concentrating or I've you know done some kind of ephemeral or really non-impactful thing versus a guy who says, oh, I changed the grip on my curveball and all of a sudden it's getting six inches more break. Like there are some things that are cogent uh, or, or important and some things that are not.
2: Yeah, I mean, the more information, the soft information you can identify, uh, that helps. I find more work in the other way, where why is a p- player underperforming? Well, there's a hidden injury or an injury they won't tell you about. It's really tough to identify those who can. Kudos to you. Uh, you have a, a definite advantage.
0: Who are some hitters that your original ATC preseason projection turns out to have missed on outside of injuries?
2: Well, there's the players that, of course, came out of nowhere, like uh, Brandon Drury, Taylor Ward, uh, Ty France. ATC was not especially high on Ty France, but he's been great. And then there's players who've uh, underperformed that ATC was high on, Um, you know, Justin Turner. Or how about a guy like Jazz Chisholm? ATC really did not like him, but he's been great. Uh, So players like that. And
0: I imagine there's more of them on the pitcher side just because we season-to-season season and in-season tend to get more variation among pitchers. So who are a couple of pitchers that have, have uh, either outperformed or underperformed their ATC projections?
2: Yeah, ATC really liked Eduardo Rodriguez, John Gray, uh, Eliezer Hernandez, Carlos Hernandez. Those are guys that I have some shares of because ATC was high on them. At, they were busts. Uh, and then there was guys at the, uh, the bottom like Michael Waka. Uh, Carlos Carrasco probably should have had more shares. ATC wasn't really kind to them. Uh, and then guys at the top, uh, like Sandy Alcantara, ATC had him as a top 15 pitcher. He's been a lot better than that. So, you know, and there was a lot of people in the industry who really said, oh, this guy's a top five Cy Young. Well, uh, ATC liked them, but not that much. So I have no shares. Uh, so you have examples at all levels, top, bottom, middle, it goes all the way.
0: But the uh, underlying assumption is that over the entirety, they're going to even out to be pretty close.
2: Yeah, of course. And there's pay- players that I have that, uh, oh boy, they, uh, that was the right pick. Aaron Judge was a player that ATC was very high on. I have him on a lot of teams. Well, that turned out to be correct, right? Uh, the idea is the more players you can identify uh, as positive are great. And uh, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It's not about the magnitude as well. It's not about finding, oh, my God, this guy is really great. If AT, it, ATC itself is never going to say that a player is, oh, my God, amazing. It's important, though, that, that when you pick a player, you're higher than the market. If you say, no, this guy is better than what the market is, it means you'll have more shares. And e- even if you're just $2 over the market and you, you get shares because of that, if a player is, gets a $10 boost in value or is the number one player, You're going to realize the entire value of the difference between what you paid for him and his output. So long story short, it's about frequency, not severity. It's about getting more picks right rather than than getting the full magnitude of how good they were, if that makes sense.
0: It does make sense. And I think it's something that a lot of fantasy managers, when they go into their drafts and auctions, misunderstand. They think I'm going to swing for the fences on a bunch of picks because I need, all I need is a couple of them to, to really pan out. And they're ignoring the risk that, you know, the likelihood, in fact, that that's not going to happen. The projection is going to probably be pretty close and you may have a good solid reason in your own mind for thinking that player X is going to outperform his ATC projection or his baseball HQ projection, but that's that's a dangerous way to go because if you're wrong, you, you sink your team. Whereas if you, if you just play it, as you suggest to gather as many slightly overvalue or just profitably in whatever way, if you get a lot of those players, even if none of them is a, you know, Aaron judge for $9 type of player, Aaron judge for $29 this year is a heck of a buy. And if you get enough of them, you're going to win.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people focus on, oh, who's the next? Who's the sleeper, right? Who's the sleeper? Uh, I got to get a ton of prospects because, may, oh, this guy could be the next. Bobby Wick could be fantastic. Um, you're focusing on a group of players, especially if you're getting rookies, prospects, that have a very low frequency of hitting. Sure, there's the outlier Juan Soto's that are, oh, my God, right? But in general, the probability of uh, out, uh, uh, paying lower than what they're actually worth on draft day is very low. And if you're playing the game of frequency of getting more right than wrong, it's a player pool that you should stay away from, right? The old boring vets have a higher chance of out earning their market day value. So I invest more in that because sure, I'm not going to find a $40 player from a five, you know, from a $5 guy, but maybe I'll get a $12 player, make a $7 profit. As long as you're having more successes and failures, that's the better way to win fantasy. And so you're, you're, you should target your strategy on draft day to getting more players right rather than one player really right.
0: At Tout Wars uh, this week, they have a a regular weekly feature called the Tout Table, where Todd Zola sends out a questionnaire to uh, everybody who's involved in Tout Wars as a fantasy manager, and we all just jot down a two or three sentence answer to the question that is posed. And this week's I thought was pretty interesting because the question was, how long do you wait before you release an underperforming player? Especially in situations where like NFBC, where you have a restricted no IL and a restricted reserve list, and all of a sudden the injuries start to pile up, so the question is, what factors go into the decision when you're deciding whether to release an underperforming player when you have limited IL spots or no IL spots?
2: Yeah, those are it's a tough question always when to release a player who's injured and goes down. Uh, I'll give you some factors that I think about, and of course some are more important than others. Uh, of course, one of them is how fast do you think the player can get back on track to his regular level of production right uh, you know if he's that going to be out 4 to 6 weeks will he actually come back then and you know even after that well if he's the leg injury is he going to steal after that right so maybe attack on a few more weeks till he gets back to regular production uh you got to factor in the depth of the league if you're in a 10 team league the decisions are going to be a little bit different versus 15 team 10 team you might want to favor getting rid of a guy whereas 15 hold them because there's nothing available in the wire it's about uniqueness of profile Uh, if a player is hard to come by if it's a unique profile on the wire that's another factor Um, you should also in, in terms of injury in terms of underperforming look at a player's underlying components is it luck related maybe it's injury related you also have to look at your own roster and say okay can i hold the player do i have do I have enough players to play? Like, am, I, am I taking an Ofer in an active spot? Or am I just not, you know, I can survive with them on the bench? Uh, maybe I can't pick up another guy on the bench, but I still have my active roster uh, not getting zeros. Right? That's a factor. Um, and the big question I always ask myself, to me, the most important thing is ask yourself, if you drop a player, will that player be picked up by somebody else? If you think that you drop a player and people are not going to want him, it's probably okay to drop him because worse comes to worse, you pick him up next week. If you think that if I drop a player, as soon as I drop him, he's snatched by somebody, you probably want to think twice about dropping him unless your roster situation is dire and you really need the production.
0: I think that's exactly the, the way to approach it. And uh, in my answer, I said, you know, so much of it depends on opportunity costs, and the opportunity costs vary with each opportunity. To the, to the extent that what I was thinking was, okay, my first question is who on my roster has to go? That's question one. And then the next question is if I pick up a free agent, how much better is the free agent going to be over the period where my original player is off the roster? Plus when I add back in the original player and drop the, the acquisition, what's that opportunity cost? What's the opportunity cost of not doing it? What if I just stay with it and just replace a guy from my reserve list with a you know scrubbish level player, but you know he's position eligible, so I add him in. But what am I foregoing if I just do that and don't pick up a better free agent player? I think you have to weigh all of these kinds of things. And of course, in every league, they're different. Even between NFBC leagues, if you look at the various free agent lists, they're not all the same. They're similar. They're very similar. But uh, in a lot of instances, there are players on your free agent list in your league that might not be on my free agent list in my league.
2: Sure. I mean, you know, for a certain position, maybe a pitcher. Let's say you need a pitcher. Well, if you're in a shallow league, there are some very decent pitchers available in the waiver wire, maybe a two-start pitcher. Well, you could be missing out on 12 strikeouts if you play an 0 or if you play a middle reliever for four strikeouts in the week. Uh, That eight-strikeout difference could be huge. Um, If you pick up uh, a first baseman, the first base in production could be really decent, right? It, it all depends on the position. It, it, it's, it's tough to, to, to give you a very generalized answer, but the general thing is it really depends on your situation. You just know the factors to consider and make your own uh, decision in your own specific case.
0: Well, let's apply an example from reality. Aussie uh, Albies, of course, just this week uh, broke his foot. And the story is he's going to be out from six to eight weeks, but most of the things I've read say eight to 10. So if we say that the window is six to 10, that brings him back sometime between late July and late August. So how would you play the decision on keeping Albies if your available replacements, and I'll just use my uh, NFPC league, uh, the TGFBI, The best available uh, people who are uh, playable at second base, Michael Chavis, Nicky Lopez, Abraham Toro, Rugneto Dorr, Vidal Brujan, C.J. Abrams, uh, maybe Tony Kemp, Kevin Biggio, and Josh Harrison. uh, Does any of those names strike you as being good enough to drop Ozzie Albies and and go ahead with uh, the replacement? Uh,
2: Again, it really depends on your team. If you have tons of injured players on the bench uh and you if you if, if Ozzy Albis well first of all you might have tons of injured tons of injured players on the bench who are worse than Ozzy Ozzy Albies. you probably want to cut them before Ozzy Albies right I, it's hard to find a situation where oh my god I have to stash these other seven players and Ozzy Albis just has to go well I mean who, who you're stashing uh, Fernando Tatis like uh, there can't be seven players, it, it, I would imagine, that are so much better than Ozzie Albies in an NFBC league, which is 15-team. Uh, so I would find it really, really hard to, to cut him, uh, and, it, it, you know, so on and so forth. And if you don't have uh, seven injured guys in a bench, if you can throw some replacement-level guy in on your roster already, and the Albies spot would be occupied by a bench guy, you know, a, a, a replacement for, you know, the next week or a midweek replacement, Ah, I I can't imagine that that cutting Albies would be the answer uh, if he's coming back with two weeks left. Then, of course, uh, with two months left. Now, of course, if you are in a uh, head-to-head league, let's say you have playoffs, right? Playoffs at the end of the season, well, that's a no-brainer. You're never going to cut Ozzy Albies because he'll be available for playoffs. So it really is uh, situation-dependent. In a TGFBI-NFPC setting, I would have to imagine the decision would be no, uh, and you keep him on your roster.
0: And as you said, that would depend on the quality of the player who's involved. And and I think most of us, when we play in the, that format of league, we got to keep at least some pitchers. We want to have a replacement pitcher available for streaming purposes or those kinds of things. So I don't think you have seven reserve choices that you need to look at all of them. I think you have maybe four, four hitters and three pitchers, something like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, I had Jacob deGrom uh, in, in my $1,500 auction championship league. Uh, I could have cut him day one. We made the decision that well, we'll take two and a half months or two months of Jacob Degrom, and we'll b- burn a uh, bench spot rather than you know use it and, and have uh, De- Jacob Degrom there. Right? We we had to ask that decision, but Degrom is probably the number one pitcher when healthy. So you know we made the determination that he's that high level that that we can. Uh, if it was a pitcher who would miss, maybe like a Lance Lynn maybe would have cut Lance Lynn if we thought he would be uh, available only uh, three months later, right? It it depends on the quality and how big the quality is and how much we think they can gain in the time remaining for the year.
0: Another big topic that comes up when people are talking about roster management or fantasy is, is trading and, Of course, a lot of leagues don't allow it. NFBC doesn't allow it for obvious reasons. But if you are in a trading league, there's always these questions about buying low and selling high. What kinds of players make legitimate buy low candidates in your view? These are the kinds of guys that you would be interested in despite some fairly poor performance.
2: I always want to look at what the player has been doing and why he's underperforming. Is it luck? Right? Are, are there luck sets out of whack? look at their BABIP for pitchers Maybe look at their strand rate. Look at the difference between their ERA estimators, right? You want to look at the the Sierra versus the ERA. Wait a minute, has he been lucky or not? Uh, has he been throwing is it legitimately he's striking out more players or not striking out more players? right? You want to look at the components to see whether the gains are real or or luck. Um, you also want to see, well, why are they, Why are they playing poorly? Is it uh, an injury that, you know, we just don't know about? Um, Maybe they changed something in the regiment. Maybe uh, if the – let's say their runs and RBIs are down. Well, maybe they're not batting. They were supposed to bat leadoff. Now they're batting ninth. Is that a legitimate change in their status for their playing time? So you need to look at those things to see the players. And, you know, if you determine that, you know what, this guy actually has potential for the future, uh, that might be a buy low candidate, especially – if uh, they don't have name value, right? If, if well, who needs this guy? Um, if they don't have name value, you can get him at a much lower cost.
0: And I presume the same is for legitimate sell highs, guys that are overperforming, you need to look at the underlying skills.
2: Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing, but, but the reverse, obviously.
0: But not many guys talk about this. When do you consider buying high on a guy or selling low on a guy?
2: So when I'm talking about uh, buying high or selling low, I think it's more about uh, the roster composition and your place in the standing. You know, if 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 let's say you're in you're in first place and you have a guy who who uh, is low, but maybe you think he could bounce back. Right. He would traditionally be a buy low candidate but you just need some expected production at the slot, right? You, you would almost take a loss on, on this if you traded them. All right, I'll, let's say I, you're trading for a player who you think is an expected $2 loss. That's okay because you're in first place and you, need, you just need the production, right? He, he, is he really underperforming because he's an in injury? Maybe you don't know. Is he underperforming? Maybe he's just legitimately worse. You don't know. So you unload that risk uh, to another player, even though he's a buy-low candidate, because you absolutely need the pre- expected production, uh, it's obviously the opposite on the high side. If you are, uh, let's say, trailing and you need absolute great production, maybe you want to buy high in a guy and pay the extra price because you want that production and say, "Wait, hey, maybe he really is legit, right?" Um, I also want to buy high if I think that I can verify the change, like you know, this guy is really stealing a lot of bases. Well, maybe I think that's going to continue. Maybe I think the manager is 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 really doing that. Remember, like Starling Marte went crazy in Oakland last year? Well, we we think that he's legitimately going to steal more. Uh, maybe he, he's a li- lineup change. Maybe he does have a swing change, and uh, he worked with the with the batting coach, right? You can identify real change. That's another situation to buy high.
0: And finally, when we're talking about projections and managing risk and so forth, we have a couple of pitchers this year, uh, Shane Boz and Trevor McGill. Uh, obviously, Shane Boz didn't even start the season, but he had a very tall reputation coming in and great expectations. Trevor McGill came into the season probably not with such great expectations, but boy, he came out of the gate just just firing and was having a terrific year before he got hurt. Now they're both back. Shane Boz is back, and he threw a stinker in his first start. Uh, Trevor McGill did not look really good in his first return start. How do you manage your expectations of guys like this who had relatively limited... Major league experience to go on before the season started. Then they miss a bunch of time. Now they come back. They they just seem like blank slates, and uh, that seems worrisome.
2: Yeah, it's really tough in these situations. First, because of the inexperience, right? Who who is what is the true talent of the player? But also, are you sure that the player is fully back from injury? Is he now going to be at his true level? Uh, that's something that you know we can guess on, but we won't. We don't know for sure. Um, you know McGill. Uh, before the season started, I, I had a, I had a lot of shares of him. Um, I, I ATC was pretty high on him, and uh, also because I, have, I had Degrom on a lot of teams, so he was a great handcuff. Uh, so hey, listen, if if Degrom can't make it, McGill, you know, let's put him in; he'll get the start. Uh, obviously that was the right call. Um, you know, Boz is a different also because he's on Tampa Bay. Tampa is not going to let these pitchers go very long. Uh, I'd be worried about really buying in in on Boz because, you know, is he going to make starts that are over five innings? How how much are they going to actually let him pitch? Are they going to just build him up slightly so that he'll be ready and effective for the playoffs for a good five-inning stint? Uh, It's hard to trust Tampa. Tampa really doesn't uh, let pitchers fly. So I'd be a little cautious on counting on volume for Boz. Maybe I'd be a little bit more optimistic. The Mets are still down some pitchers and, uh, they do have reinforcements coming so they can let him fly a little bit more. Uh, but again, it really comes down to all the injury, all things being aside And assuming that they're both to full strength. Uh, I'd rather take a, a gamble on McGill rather than Boz only because of the uh, situation of teams. Uh, obviously Boz is the better pitcher, uh, but there we go. I'm not so sure Boz, by the way, is back fully right now. Um, I, would, I wouldn't even play him for the, the next two starts. I would, I would wait on him, see how he does, and you know if he's still hot, uh, make him roster him, but don't play him just yet.
0: Ariel, this has been terrific so far. Let's take a quick break. We need to do our National League and American League news with Nick and with Ray, and then we'll come back and finish the discussion. All right, sounds great. Ariel Cohn writes for Rotoballer and Rotographs and hosts the Beat the Shift podcast. He'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right away, though, I'd like to tell you about an item of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our minor leagues coverage, our scouting analysts are previewing the 2022 College World Series and delivering the daily call-ups report this week, including Baltimore outfielder Kyle Stowers and Pittsburgh outfielder Kanan smith njigba tearing up AAA. Just one of the great items this week at BaseballHQ.com.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report and leading off our National League news and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here.
0: We start with some bad news in Atlanta. They placed uh, Aussie Albies, their fine second baseman, on the 60-day IL. A pretty interesting move because it indicates that there's no early recovery for Aussie Albies. Usually they go to the 15-day or the 10-day IL, I should say, and then they extend them once they need the spot. But straight to the 60 for Aussie Albies, he broke his foot and... I don't know if you saw the uh, injury at all, but it looked like he just walked, took a couple of steps forward and fell down with a broken foot. It was weird. Uh, they recalled Phil Goslin <laughs> Apparently uh, fantasy teams aren't the only people who have trouble finding replacements. Phil Hertz covers the playing time today for the uh, Atlanta Braves. Uh, not that they can replace Albies, but who replaces Albies?
3: Albies will be out until at least mid-August, maybe longer. So We've cut his projected playing time uh, in half from 90% to 45% and may need to reduce that further. Uh, and Gosling gets his roster spot, as you said, that it appears that Orlando Arcea is going to start. Uh, as a result, he gets a big bump in playing time. Batting average now is 327. Uh, XBA is much lower. However, coming into this season, Arcea has only had fantasy value in 2017 and in the abbreviated 2020 pandemic season. So, uh fantasy managers will want to tread very carefully beside before they decide to roster Orlando Arcia.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought when I saw Arcia. Of course, Goslin has no fantasy value to speak of at all and uh you know, Arcea's been one of those guys over the years that s- looks a lot better on paper than he actually performs on the field. I-, I think there's going to be some bidding on him, just on playing time alone, especially in deeper leagues, but overall, I don't think we can have too high of expectations on Orlando Arcia.
3: No, I-, I don't think so at all. I mean, as uh, uh, XBA at this point is 266, well below his actual batting average and, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. If you-, if you get lucky, you might get a couple of good weeks out of him, but probably not someone who's going to give you lasting value.
0: The thing that jumped out at me uh, from this year's track record, admittedly only in 56 at-bats, is that he's got a 1047 OPS, uh, largely made up of a really solid... uh, slugging percentage over 600, which is really like terrific slugging, but it's way out of character for him uh, over his career. His slugging percentage is usually in the sort of 375 to 415 kind of range. All of a sudden he's got 200 extra points of slugging. I know it's possible that he's done something different. He's drawing a lot more walks. And uh, as we know, the the ability to draw walks indicates a command of the strike zone that leads to more barrels and higher exit velocities and so forth. But a 151 hard contact index, partly made up of a 75% contact rate, but a lot of it made up from... Uh, his uh, sudden burst of power to a 143 with a 185 expected power index, which is actually a pretty strong positive suggestion for him. But again, it's way out of character for his past to power indexes, Nick. Uh, I'm just looking at going back to 2016, and some of these were fairly small years as playing time goes, but 87, 70, 54, 66, 86, 66, All of a sudden, 143, that's like two years' worth if you sum it up.
3: Yeah, and the the thing to look at is his hit percentage, hit rate right now is 46%. That's not going to continue. Uh, Hit rates have generally been around 30 for him, so we've got a lot of regression coming.
0: And re- regression in the wrong direction, unfortunately. Uh, moving on, after exiting his Friday start with just 70 pitches, Walker Bueller was put on the IL with what they're calling a right forearm strain. And boy, that's that's something you don't want to hear for any pitcher. The forearm strain often a precursor to elbow problems or the result of elbow problems. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today. I'd have to say things don't look promising for Walker Bueller.
3: No, not at all. Bueller hasn't been been his vintage self all season, a uh, 4.02 ERA through 65 innings pitched and now projects to miss extended time. Uh, a lot of comings and goings right now in the Dodgers. Clayton Kershaw was activated for a Saturday start. Andrew Haney is expected back next weekend following two uh, LA off days during the week. We'll use Bueller's vacated innings pitch projection to upgrade Tony Gonsolin and Tyler Anderson. Both have been huge 2022 surprises to date. Uh, and they'll probably get the, the extra paying time. And uh, at this point, just a, a continued rotation of strong arms through the Dodger rotation.
0: One of these situations, though, Nick, where you're looking at guys like Gonsolin and Anderson and thinking, boy, I'm going to run out to my free agent list and grab hold of one or both, but they're probably already rostered given the tremendous performances they've had this year. Gosh, Gonsolin, a 142 ERA, and 0.82 whip, uh, despite some skills that suggest that maybe he's a little bit out over his skis.
3: Yeah, I think he's done done very, very well, and so has Tyler Anderson. Both are likely to be gone in, in any kind of a competitive league at this point.
0: I don't imagine anybody projected Tony Gonsolin to be a $32 5x5 five five pitcher uh, in uh, 2022 when the dust all settles, but gosh, uh, he's doing it so far. But as I said, if you look underneath the hood, it's a little bit suspicious, to say the least, uh, How's this for bad news? Yadier Molina in St. Louis, the catcher, going on the IL with ailing knees. Boy, being an old guy is bad enough for your knees, but being an old guy who catches in Major League Baseball's got to be worse.
3: It's got to be awful to be an old guy who catches with, with ailing knees. I, I I understand the ailing knees very well. And uh, me too. Yeah. yeah. And, and kneeling down on them is not uh, over and over and over again is, is not a good thing. So uh, that's that's really bad news in St. Louis, especially the way he's been playing. Uh, backup Andrew Nitzer is likely to step up, uh, 198 batting average, one home run, 11 RBIs and 111 plate appearances. So now a massive hole at catcher offensively in the St. Louis lineup.
0: And a fairly massive hole for fantasy managers who had or Molina as well. Uh, it's not easy to replace catchers at the best of times, especially in deeper leagues that, uh, not good news either for Steven Strasburg. Uh, he came back last week, laid an egg in his first start back from the IL, and now he's back on the IL. And they made a bunch of other moves with uh, D. Strange, Gordon got sent out. Uh, Jordan Weems got sent out. Uh, Jackson Tetro and Reed Garrett, a couple of pitchers, right-handers got called up, as did left-hander Francisco Perez. Uh, half It's hard to tell the players without a scorecard, I guess, is the one way you could put it. But what happens in the uh, downstream effect of Strasburg's second IL trip this season?
3: Yeah, uh, Strasburg has a stress reaction between his second and third ribs, an injury related to last uh, year's thoracic outlet surgery. Uh, Information on the length of his stay current, this this new stay on the IL is pending. uh, But we've cut his projected playing innings uh, considerably. Uh, tetro got the start on june 14th but he did not fare well at all in that in that start uh four innings pitch seven earned runs three home runs uh certainly not what you what you want to see um perez and, and garrett are expected to be used out of the pen both saw their initial action in the same game neither reliever can be recommended and at best tetro is worthy of a spot on the on a watch list, uh, in, in hopes that that initial start was just a uh, a, a, bad, a bad day for him. Uh, D-Strange Gordon may find his way into another major league team, but his fantasy value is extremely limited.
0: Everybody's excited by guys like D. Strange Gordon because of the possibility of stolen bases, but of course you can't steal first, as we like to say here on Baseball HQ Radio, and uh, D. Strange Gordon was just having trouble getting aboard. In uh, Colorado, the right-handed reliever Tyler Kinley was having a pretty good year, a pleasant surprise in the Colorado bullpen, but now he's having elbow surgery and he's for sure done for the season. Uh, Nick Bunch, one of our new writers covering Colorado for playing time today. So what happens in the Colorado bullpen now that Tyler Kinley's out for the year?
3: Yeah, really an unfortunate turn for Kinley who had been a surprise success in that bullpen this season. Was sporting a 0.75 ERA, 1.13 whip with 27 strikeouts in 24 innings pitched and all largely supported by underlying metrics. Uh, His uh, strikeout per nine ticked back up over 10. He had the best uh, walks per nine of his five major league seasons. Some even suggested he was likely to represent the Rockies in the all-star game. What's not clear at this point is whether it's full on Tommy John surgery or something less, which will impact the length of his rehab at best. He's looking to return by string training next season as he's expected to miss the remainder of this year. Going forward, Bud black has a variety of options to use late in games, a uh, right-hand pitcher, Alex Colom may get the first shot as he has the most experience pitching late in games. Surface stats are respectable, 2.22 ERA, 1.27 whip, but uh, K nine is at a career low of 4.8 and benefiting from a slightly elevated uh, strand rate. right handed pitcher Robert Stevenson has been inconsistent. He's been hit hard. right handed pitcher Justin Lawrence is striking out batters at a high clip, but his control has been awful. Uh, for now, we've split Kenley's holds among the three, but keep an eye on this situation as uh, – Uh, as this situation is really very, very fluid.
0: About the only thing you could say for Alex Colomay as a relief pitcher is that he's got a track record as having earned some saves in the past, but gosh, it's hard to believe that anybody's in the major leagues with a five strikeout per nine rate.
3: It really is. I mean, it's uh, only his his past track record, I think, is kind of keeping him there. That's a very, very low uh, strikeout rate in these days.
0: And in fact, uh, Colome actually has never been a high dominance guy. In 2016, he was at 11.3, which is really good. But otherwise, it's uh, you know kind of seven, eight, and more recently six, six, seven. So I don't know. Uh, I don't think that Alex Colome is really worth a look. But again, if the manager says, hey. He's an established closer or a proven closer or whatever the terminology that they use is. He could end up getting saves despite not having skills because saves is a dumb stat. It has nothing to do with skills. It has everything to do with role.
3: That's true, but more likely maybe to get holds than, skill, than saves, and so it depends on what, what uh, you count in your league. Kinley was not getting saved but was getting holds, and that's the thing that needs to be replaced at this point is the guy who's going to come in before the ninth inning and uh, just keep things under wraps.
0: Well, Nick, I don't know if you have Fernando Tatis on any of your fantasy rosters, but I know people who do, and they were really looking forward to him coming back relatively soon. But uh, unfortunately, they had a CT scan of his injured wrist recently, and it didn't show enough healing for him to even begin swinging a bat. So this is bad news for Fernando Tatis, bad news for the Padres, bad news for Fernando Tatis fantasy managers. Jock Thompson covering the story for playing time today and Dan Marcus in playing time tomorrow. He covers the National League West. What's the upshot here with Fernando Tatis farther back on the shelf?
3: Well, we may have been optimistic about his return date, but now a reasonable return date range looks like it's either late July, early August. uh, Haseon Kim. 212 batting average, four homers, four stolen bases to 189 at-bats. Gets an immediate bump in playing time as the primary shortstop for now. C.J. Abrams lurks in the minors, and his offensive upside is uh, never far away. Triple-A, El Paso, uh, Abrams uh, struggled in his first first uh, recall to, to uh, San Diego. So hard to know if the, how soon they will want to bring him back. Uh, but uh, certainly a, a bad, uh, bad thing for fantasy managers of Tatis at this point.
0: Yeah, C.J. Abrams didn't look particularly solid in his first go-round in San Diego. When, of course, Tatis was first hurt, he's hitting 182 with a 543 OPS. And anytime you see an OPS that starts with a number under six, I think you're you're in trouble. He l- just looked completely overmatched. So it remains to be seen if he can get the ship back on its keel in uh, minor leagues and and get. Uh, some kind of uh, momentum going for a return. He can really hit in the minors. He's really hitting, but he he's, uh, certainly didn't match the minor league performance with major league performance so far this year anyway. In Chicago, a couple of pitchers, uh, one right-hander, one left-hander, Stroman and Miley, were both placed on the uh, IL. They have shoulder inflammation. Uh, Ray Murphy, we know him. He covered the story for playing time today. So what are the Cubs going to do in an awful season with two of their five rotation starters now out of action?
3: For Stroman, this is the latest setback and a very bumpy start to his Cubs career. His skills have been wildly out of line with historical levels, and now he gets more time to rest his arm. Uh, For Miley, this is uh, disappointing as he came off the aisle on Friday, lasted only three innings, ends up right back on the shelf. Uh, reliever Christopher Martin has been recalled, but it's not yet clear what the Cubs will do once Stroman and Matty's rotation turns come back around next week. Uh, Matt Swarmer figures to stick around kind of out of necessity at this point.
0: Another couple of guys at the end of the roster might be Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson behind Swarmer, but this ro- this rotation didn't look that terrific in, in the first place. It's headed by you know guys like Hendricks and Stroman, canny veterans rather than really super effective pitchers at this stage of their career. They recently recalled Caleb Killian who featured on uh, frequent flyers, Alex Becky's look. And so far uh, he's been okay, I guess, but this is not a good situation for the Cubs.
3: No, not at all. It's uh, it's hard to know what they're going to have to, to do to fill out a rotation at this point.
0: Let's get to some good news. Nick uh, Cincinnati has activated second baseman, Jonathan India and, uh, DH third baseman Mike Moustakas from the IL. Of course they had to put Aristides Aquino on the IL but two for one getting up and they made a couple of other roster moves as well. What's going on in Cincinnati once the dust settles there?
3: Uh, India returns to second base on a daily basis after being sidelined nearly two months with hamstring issues. Uh, Mustakas will play versus right-handed pitching, splitting time between DH and third base. Uh, Brandon Drury has claimed regular playing time while playing extensively at third base and seeing considerable action at second and at DHs. Power production leads the Reds at home runs and RBIs, and with versatility, likely ensure he continues to see substantial playing time. Matt Reynolds returns to utility infielder role after seeing the bulk of second-base playing time in recent weeks. Uh, Aquino's seemingly minor injury means a slight playing time bump for outfielder Albert Amora. Tommy Pham will likely see increased left-field time and correspondingly less DH time. With virtually no change in his overall playing time. Rookie Alejo Lopez seems more likely than journeyman Colin Moran to reemerge with the Reds later in the season, and Reaver San Martin could carve out a matchup oriented relief role after struggling as an early season starter.
0: In more good news, St. Louis, of course, now missing their catcher, but they got to activate their ace starter, right-hander Jack Flaherty is back from the IL. Uh, Zach Larson covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Of course, we're going to assume Flaherty goes straight back to the top of the rotation, but what happens with the rest of it once he gets there?
3: Flaherty uh, made his season debut on Wednesday, June 15th after being on the IL due to shoulder bursitis. Um, That that start uh, did not go especially well. Three innings pitched, uh, two earned runs, uh, three strikeouts, two walks. So a, 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 sl- a slow start. They didn't, didn't rush him back in. Expected to be limited around 60 pitches in that start. And right-handed pitcher Andre Pallante to serve as a bridge reliever at this point. We're leaving the projection as it is until we see how Flaherty responds as he continues to get stretched out over his next few starts. Pallante has shown promise when called upon. Five and a third innings pitch, no one runs, four strikeouts in his last start. And St. Louis may continue to lean on him, on Palante, as well as spot starts from uh, left-handed pitcher Matthew Matthew Libertor and left-handed pitcher Zach Thompson as they wait for other key rotation members to return.
0: Very competitive team, St. Louis, and I bet they're really anxious to get those pitchers back. And finally, another reinstatement, uh, San Francisco Giants reinstated first baseman Brandon Belt from the 10-Day I.L., Jake Crumpler covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. With Belt back, what happens in the rest of the San Francisco lineup?
3: Well, Belt landed on the I.L. on May 22nd as a result of right knee inflammation. And the slugging first baseman took some time to get healthy and build back up to major league readiness. But he should take over the strong side of the first base platoon and semi-regular DH duties as he looks to build upon the 228, 342, 386 slash line he posted prior to the injury. Uh, the corresponding move infielder Donovan Walton was optioned to triple-A, and we'll see a drop in his playing time.
0: Brandon Belt's one of those guys that nobody ever seems to want to draft, but everybody's always happy when they when they do. He's been a very sort of reliable, steady performer, a producer for low these many years, and uh, I expect Brandon Belt will be back on a lot of fantasy rosters coming up right away.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, Brandon Belt's a good guy. I've had him on several rosters at various times. Uh, A good guy to have on your roster as long as he stays in the lineup and remains healthy, and that's always an issue uh, from from, uh, year to year with Brandon Belt.
0: Doubly useful in on-base percentage leagues. I know uh, I don't think he's had an OBP under 340 or so for the last many years. He was 425 in the short season, uh, 394 in 2016. So this guy can get on base, and it's partly because he draws a lot of walks, but that's a skill worth considering.
3: Yeah, it very definitely is. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I play in an on-base league and and a guy like Glennon Belt is a good guy to have in your lineup because uh, even when his batting average is not high, his on-base percentage certainly is.
0: But as you said, the trouble is staying on the field in the last 10 years or so. He's been in the league since 2011 and only twice has he exceeded 600 plate appearances, once in 2016 and once in 2019. So the flip side of the steady capable contributions that Brandon Belt makes is he's often not, not available to make the contributions.
3: Yeah. And very, and various things, not, not always the same thing, but just a guy who seems to get injured a lot. And uh, you know, we have a, have a kind of a mentor at, uh, at baseball HQ that, that frequently injured guys never suddenly get healthy.
0: No, that's exactly right, and uh, and it's, it's worth keeping in mind. In the short run, anything can happen, but uh, in the long run, I think you almost have to draft Brandon Belt or acquire him with Fab in the expectation that you're probably not going to get full-time plate appearances. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Nick, uh, lots of bad news, a little bit of good news, and we'll be back next week to talk more National League news, good and bad, and I'm looking forward to talking with you then.
3: All right, thank you, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at baseballhq.com and our reporter on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and baseballhq.com, co general manager and writer Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show.
4: Happy Friday as always, PD.
0: It is a happy Friday, but not so happy for Houston fans and uh, fantasy managers of Jeremy Pena. Rookie of the Year candidate shortstop in Houston has been sent to the IL with what they're calling left-thumb discomfort. Uh, Jock Thompson covering the story for playing time today. I remember them saying this was not considered severe, but I guess it's severe enough. But uh, how do fantasy managers in the Astros replace Jeremy Pena?
4: Yeah, you you always get nervous when first it's not a big deal and then they IL him and then you don't know where the the floor is, right? You just does it keep getting worse until... You know, next week you need surgery or something. You hope it doesn't amount to that. Uh, but Baker basically said that Pena won't swing a bat for a week. So Jock was pretty conservative about adjusting the playing time, as I was saying, sort of until the other shoe drops or the other thumb drops or whatever we want to call it here. <laughs> um, but for the so for the short term, it's super utility guy Alledis Diaz, who's not having a great year, but he's going to fill in at shortstop. Uh, you know, he's had a pretty decent track record of of performance in these short-term opportunities in the past. This year, uh, you know, he's been plagued by a 24% hit rate, but again, small sample caveats apply. Uh, we've seen him provide some pop and some, um, you know, some productivity played in these couple of week cameos filling in around the Astros infield. So, uh, you know, if the opportunity is, more than a couple of days or a week, then he might be worth a uh, short-term ad in some leagues, or certainly if you're trying to replace Pena, he makes a decent decent enough handcuff.
0: I'm going to give you a thumbs down on that wisecrack, by the way. I noticed in the uh, Baseball HQ Scouting Preseason Org reports that the Astros also have another shortstop in their top three prospects, Uh, Peña of course number one coming into this season, but the Astros have always been pretty aggressive promoting their prospects, so what chance do you think there is that we see Pedro Leon, and what chance that he produces for fantasy purposes?
4: You know, I had to go and research this uh, when you pointed it out to me this morning because uh, I, I have known that, you know, Leon is sort of an interesting prospect at the plate. Uh, he's only hitting 215 this year in AAA and 245 plate appearances, but there are nine homers and 16 stolen bases there. Uh, you know, he's a Cuban export and, you know, obviously there are nine homers and 16 stolen bases points to sort of a... Uh, power and speed calling card and as you as you often get with those you know there's some swing and miss in play there uh you know he's striking out 30 percent of the time in triple a which you know forebodes poorly for what might happen in the majors we rated him this preseason as as an 8d prospect which calls him a sort of a potential full-time regular but you know with about a 30 percent chance of hitting that ceiling so you know the I think that's reflective of a sort of a risk reward profile here. Um, I think the the key point though, is I went and looked at his minor league games played. And when I was aware of him last year, I was more on him as I thought he might've been a uh, stealth entrant in the post George Springer center field race. And, you know, Chaz McCormick and some other guys have ended up filling in that role. Um, But I thought of Leon Moore as an outfielder, but you're right that he's been listed as a shortstop in several places. So I went and had to go look it up, and he's only played three or four games at shortstop this year. He gets about 75% of his playing time in the outfield and the other 25% between second base and shortstop. So I think calling him up, even if Pena is out for longer than we're currently expecting, is probably a stretch because I think he profiles as a primary outfield in case of emergency infielder sort of
0: thing. Well, that's bad news for anybody who's looking for middle infield help because uh, obviously that's one area where the uh, with the Pena injury notwithstanding, we, we figure Pena's going to be back fairly soon. So they really have no impetus to recall Pedro Leon at all at this point because their outfield looks pretty set. And of course, they're set at second base as well. So I guess uh, if you're thinking about Pedro Leon, he's going to follow the Kansas City uh, model of reaching the big leagues, which is shortly after he's dead
4: exactly and you know, maybe and, and you might be right about what's going on with uh with Leone he may be like you know, moving around the AAA field trying to find a place where he's not obviously blocked at the major league level and you know so far he hasn't done that <laughs> you know he probably thought hey I'll play some shortstop you know maybe Pena will flame out in the majors and oh man rookie of the year candidate you know should I go try left field you know third base Bregman ah crap what do I do here yeah.
0: <laughs> Manager, general manager, maybe I could buy the team. Up in Boston, the Red Sox placed utility man Christian Arroyo on the COVID IL and recalled Jaron Duran, the outfielder. It seems like we've been waiting on Jared Duran for a while. Real tantalizing speed. Is this the future arriving in the present?
4: I'm, I'm starting to get a little pessimistic about Duran, uh, both because you know he's been yanked around by the Red Sox, I think is probably the best way to put it. He's gotten a bunch of cup, cups of coffee, but not an extended opportunity. And to be fair, he hasn't exactly kicked the door down either and forced his way to staying in, the, in, in at Fenway. But it does seem like the Red Sox are you know, somewhat reluctant to commit to him and give him that extended look, which I think is dulling my optimism just a little bit. But this is another cup of coffee and with Kike Hernandez out and Arroyo out, and uh, you know some real opportunities, especially in center field here for at least this weekend and into next week until those guys start to come back. Arroyo's uh, positive for COVID, so we'll see how long it takes him to clear that. And Kike might go on a rehab stint this weekend, but uh, it's not exactly clear when he'll be back. So yet another short-term opportunity. Duran's had. Several of them, but is this the one where he sticks? I, I tend to think not, uh, just because this is a, uh, you know, he, he's probably got a ticket back to Worcester within the next week once Arroyo and Hernandez are back.
0: And baseball HQ analyst Chris Olson suspects that Kike Hernandez will be back right when he's first eligible, which would be this weekend on Sunday, I think he said. Uh, Chris also mentioned a guy. Uh, honestly, Ray, I've never heard of a right-hander named Josh Winkowski who found his way into the Boston rotation of all places. And I have to confess, I, as I said, I don't know. What can you tell us about Josh Winkowski?
4: Yeah, it's easy to have missed him arriving in Boston. He was part of the return for Andrew Benintendi when Benintendi went to the Royals. Uh, you know, the headliner in that trade was Frankie Cordero coming back to the Red Sox. But in fact, what happened was Cordero was the major league piece, but in fact, the Red Sox took like five or maybe even six pieces from both the Royals and the Mets in what became a three-way deal. And Winkowski was one of those sort of agate-type additions to that Benintendi for Franchi headline trade. Um, He's pitched well in AAA. He's got a sub-one WHIP, a three thirty-eight ERA. You know, he's more of a control artist than a fireballer. He's got 43 strikeouts to eight walks in 43 innings. So he's managing a strikeout an inning, but, you know, notably not walking people. Uh, so Ivaldi and Garrett Whitlock are both on the shelf for the Red Sox, at least for, it seems like another turn through the rotation. Well, it seems like maybe next weekend we'll see one or both of those. So Winkowski and Cutter Crawford are probably going to be the two guys who take the turns In the rotation this week, and they've got the Cardinals this weekend, but then they've got the Indians and Tigers uh, in the next week. So maybe a favorable start or two for each of them, uh, depending on whether they decide that Ivaldi and Whitlock need rehab starts of their own and delay them or if they just plug right back into the rotation.
0: I didn't think much of Crawford. Uh, I noticed in relief he was actually pretty poor. Uh, 844 ERA, 216 whip, uh, when I was looking at him last week as a possible ad for the weekend on a start basis. But he really looked fantastic against Seattle on Sunday. Five innings, a single hit, uh, four walks, seven strikeouts, and he didn't give up a run. Has Crawford pitched himself with that one start into greater consideration, do you think?
4: You know, he's been sort of a tale of two. Um you know, he's had high highs and low lows, I guess is the best way to say it. And, you know, you certainly saw, uh, a high on Sunday when he came in and, you know, came in as sort of an emergency starter and through five innings of one hit ball. He, he had a couple of good relief outings in a multi-inning role early in the season. I remember one against, uh, Tampa when he, you know, came into a, uh, a game and through three scoreless innings with, uh, a bunch of strikeouts as I recall, but then he also, you know, got knocked around several times and that's what had led him to getting set down by, you know, early to mid may when they needed to shuffle a roster spot. So, uh, you know, he had, he had spent about a month in triple a before that recall. Uh, but, but, you know, it, it's, it's been an erratic ride for him. And I, I, we've seen that good mode that we saw on Sunday, but we've also seen the other side of the coin. So if he sticks, I think, uh, he will probably continue to be uh, the proverbial bag of chocolates.
0: Tampa placed right-hander Drew Rasmussen on the 15-day IL. He's got a hamstring strain. If there's any good news when a pitcher goes on the IL, it's not an arm, and I guess they got to be thankful for that. Chris Olson covered the story for Playing Time today. Rasmussen has been something of a revelation this season. Ray, a three forty-one ERA, one fourteen WHIP. 49 to 16 strikeouts to walks. What are the ramifications with Rasmussen leaving the rotation on what is a steadily churning Tampa Bay pitching staff?
4: Yeah, churning or dropping like flies, or you know, a war of attrition in the uh, that Rays pitching staff. It's uh, you know they've taken more than their fair share of uh, body blows, all parts of the body at this point. Uh, for Rasmussen, I think we're looking at him missing at least two starts, is what I read. We might see him uh maybe in er, the last couple of days of June or first of July depending on how quickly that hamstring clears up uh the, the short term recall was Ralph Garza who I think we thought was going to be used on Thursday against the Yankees in uh in the bulk role uh with, following a Jason Beeks start and Beeks did start and give them two innings but I don't know if it was the game flow or something else or just the depth in the raised bullpen where they decided to sort of make it a true bullpen game and went to five other guys after Beaks, none of whom were Garza. So that, that, you know, that's the risk from, uh, you know, either daily lineup or DFS play. If you want to chase that, uh you know, that, that, that long reliever coming in, sometimes you don't see them at all. And sometimes the, the the long and long reliever isn't as long as you want. Right. So I assume Garza stays on standby for this weekend. And since they did blow out the bullpen, you know, fairly well yesterday with five guys pitching uh that you know that, that we might see him sponge up a couple of innings this weekend
0: you called it the bulk roll. Remember back when Tampa was first doing this, there seemed to be a lot of disagreement about what we should call that second guy. Was he the follower? Was he the innings guy? You know, the and it seems to have coalesced into support for the bulk roll. And every time I hear somebody say the bulk roll, I think of day-old bread at the, uh, you know, buy them two dozen at a time kind of store. So I, I don't know what's going to go on there. A Minnesota activated right hander, Sonny Gray from the injured list to Rick Green for playing time today. Day, and Sunny Gray looked pretty good on Wednesday coming back.
4: Yeah, he did, and you know, performance has not been his problem this year. You know, he came up right off the IL and threw five scoreless innings at the Mariners. You know, he's got a two oh nine ERA right now, and it's backed pretty well by a you know three 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 four expected ERA, which is right in line with where he always is. Caveat: when he's healthy, you know, it's been pretty much the same old Sunny Gray. It's just that we haven't seen that much of him. Uh, You know, the health is a chronic concern. This was his second IL trip this season. And of course, he hasn't reached 200 innings since 2015, if I go back and look. Uh, So, you know, these periodic interruptions to his seasons are, you know, sort of what you expect when you roster him. But the skills say he continues to be strong when he is in there. And, you know, assuming he came out of that five inning start the other day. Uh, you know with with no lingering effects and you would expect him to be back to more of a normal workload in five days time
0: rick green pointed out that uh, sonny gray hasn't reached 200 innings since 2015 so we're looking at the seventh year since he managed to do that and at this point i think we have to say you need to temper your expectations more down to the 150 range if you're going to assess the proper value of sonny gray
4: that's exactly i think that's exactly right you know he's a 140 150 you know 160 if all goes well kind of guy and that's how you ha- how you have to value him uh you know for for roster construction purposes it, and it you know again it's not like he misses you know he, he, it's not as much like the Clayton Kershaw pattern where you know that the the back is going to flare up and there's going to be a six eight week IL stint in there right it seems like Gray Moore gets uh Moore gets dinked and dunked but uh you know, chronically injured guys don't suddenly get healthy, especially pitchers, especially at age 32, like Gray is. So, I think you're right to say that you know what you see is what you get here.
0: 175 in Cincinnati back in uh, 2019, and ever since then, as you said, quite a few injuries sapping away at his uh, innings count. The innings are good when you get them, but of course that you have to calibrate in that risk that you're going to miss uh, more than that usual amount of innings. Uh, in Texas, the Rangers activated a couple of pitchers: left-hander Brett Martin and right-hander Jose Leclerc, and they made some roster room by sending uh, young left-hander Colby Allard and fringe outfielder Steel Walker back to triple A. Rod Trusdell covers the Rangers for playing time today. We'll get to Martin in a second, but clearly the interesting part of this story is the activation of Leclerc. He's a former Texas closer. So how excited do you think we should be that maybe he can once again be the Texas closer?
4: You know, I think we have to pump the brakes a little bit. You know, we all remember, you know, obviously you know former closer gets everyone excited, especially in a somewhat unsettled end like we have here. But, you know, let's remember, this is clerk's return uh, after missing over a year due to Tommy John. You know, he threw two winnings in the short 2020 season. So, I mean, he, he hasn't carried any kind of workload since 2019. So it's been a while. Of course, back in 2019, uh, 2018 and 19 was when he was uh, working, you know, in at least part-time roles as a closer, uh, you know, 12 for 12 in the end of 2018 carried that as the closer and then carried that role with at least start 2019 when he picked up, uh, 14 more saves, you know, so 26 saves over two years is a, you know, I, I don't know what I, I would attach the proven closer sticker to him, but it's a, it's a body of work. Right. Um, I, I think the caution, the reason to pump the brakes here though, is that I, I think our rule of thumb with, Tommy John is that, you know, velocity comes back pretty quickly, but command takes a little bit longer. And it's only been a year since uh, LeClerc's surgery. And more importantly, even before the surgery, he never really had anything we would consider good command. So, uh, you know, I don't know what, what the baseline is for him to return to. Uh, so, you know, th- those are probably some of the reasons to be cautious.
0: I remember that 2019 season and 2018 both, and he had that big long run, as you mentioned, 12 for 12, and then he picked up 14 more saves the next year. And then all of a sudden, everything just seemed to go wrong, and he pretty much just got replaced. And I think that's the concern. And of course, in modern fantasy baseball, the chances of you being able to wait and see on a guy like Jose Leclerc are actually pretty slim because somebody's going to take the jump probably this weekend or as soon as he's eligible in their leagues which will be sooner rather than later i think the correct way to approach it is to wait and see what goes on in the bullpen wait and see what kind of performance jose leclerc looks like he's maybe capable of it could be that the elbow problems were causing or at least causing somewhat the control issues that he was having and maybe they're better now that he's had the uh surgery and the rehab, so there's a lot of reasons to think that Jose Leclerc might work out to be a pretty good player. The problem is it's going to cost you uh, a waiver pick or some fab this weekend or next to find out, and uh, there's just as good a chance that you're going to find out that he's uh, kind of a back-of-the-bullpen kind of guy and not going to pick up a lot of saves, not that there's that many there anyway.
4: That's right, you know, but the other thing, I guess, to put a mild point in his favor is is that His timing is good in that you know Joe Barlow looked like he was going to take the job and run with it for much of like the month of May, but then he's been pretty shaky in June here. He's I think he's been giving up six runs in his last six appearances or something along those lines. So you know if it turns out that Barlow pitches himself out of the role or sort of forces a change to be made, Leclerc is at least. One of the guys standing there, you know, it's not, you know, we've seen this scenario before where sometime this weekend or next week, Barlow comes in for a save, blows the save. They go to extra innings and, you know, LeClerc happens to be a guy who's available, steals a save that way. And now suddenly the manager's getting questioned like, oh, you know, who's getting your next save up? And he's like, well, you know, I like what I saw from LeClerc tonight. And, you know, stranger things have happened. I just, to your point, there's an opportunity cost involved in, you know, what the how much fab it costs you, or you know, what, what, or, or how your waivers work. And of course, you know, there are any number of pens that are in similar states of disarray every weekend. So you sort of have to figure out, you know, where Leclerc ranks on your, uh, on, on your closer carousel rank uh, priority list.
0: And of course, he does have the advantage that some managers seem never to be able to forget. He's got that tattoo or label sold into his undershorts or something that says proven closer. That is, he has some experience in the role and a lot of times managers will fall back on that when they're explaining a choice, when the, something goes wrong and the media come chasing after him and say, you know, hey Jim, why did you go this way? Say, well, he's a proven closer and what more could you ask for when you're trying to make that decision? And the answer is you could ask for a whole bunch of stuff rather than that, but uh, when you're dealing with the fallout of making a decision, sometimes the easiest way to go is the easiest way to go.
4: Right. And the other aspect, you know, from our fantasy point of view, the other aspect in LeClerc's favor is that he's available, right? Most other bullpens, the second option, even the third option, depending on the depth of your league, are already going to be rostered. Here's a guy who's, you know, newly off a long-term IL stint, probably not rostered in many, if any, leagues other than, you know, really deep. You know, draft and hold type formats where people were fishing in round 48 back in February. But if you're in a Fab League, he's probably available this weekend. And you know, if all the other bull you know bullpens in flux have most of the candidates stashed already, here's a new guy to stash and hope for the scenario I talked about two minutes ago.
0: And meanwhile, what about Brett Martin, the left-hander?
4: Yeah, you know, he'll probably just get back into that. Uh, that sort of lefty specialist role, and you'll see him pick up the random save in a situation where the matchups dictate to him, and/or a couple of vulture wins. Uh, would expect him to, uh, you know, be more valuable in holds leagues than anywhere else because of that that usage
3: profile.
0: I think that's right, and you know, yes. you could have worse guys in uh, very deep leagues, twelve team singles, and maybe. 18-24 team mixed. Otherwise, I think there are better choices than Brett Martin. Uh, the White Sox activated right-hander Vince Velasquez from the 15-day IL. He was on there with a groin problem. They put right-hander Kyle Crick on the 15-day IL. Uh, Rick Green covering the White Sox for playing time today. What does manager Tony La Russa do with six pitchers in the rotation?
4: Yeah, this gets interesting because now he's got sort of, I don't want to say questions, but he's got fluidity I guess at both in the rotation and in the back into the bullpen right uh, so is he gonna stick with six starters here uh, you know there, I, it might, that might have been a very short-term decision because there were some questions about Michael Kopeck's health uh, he was having some knee dip discomfort LaRusa indicated that Kopeck could still pitch this Sunday if everything goes well between now and then uh, but then we'll have to see if he's willing to stick with six or if Velasquez goes to the bullpen or maybe they back off a of Kopech's workload a little bit, uh, you know, we had talked recently about in, the, in this spot about how Kopech is sort of finally graduating into taking a starter's workload after have, having those sort of restrictor plates on him for a long time. But if this knee issue is suggesting that he can't carry that workload after all, maybe he gets a break in the bullpen. I think that all remains to be seen and probably depends on uh, how Copex how knee responds in the coming days.
0: I looked at the BaseballHQ.com uh, playing time projections on our depth charts and I consulted another resource as well and in both of them they seem to be giving kind of five and a half uh, as expectations for how many guys are in that rotation with Velasquez being the half. But as you said, if Kopech ends up being the half, then maybe Vince Velasquez becomes one of the full-time starters in in that rotation. And that raises the question, Ray, how interested are you in Vincent Velasquez? Because so far this year, he hasn't seemed that interesting from a fantasy perspective.
4: No, I'm not excited about the prospect of more starts for Vince Velasquez. Uh, I, I think we know who he is at this point, and you know, he throws hard and doesn't necessarily have a great idea of where it's going and tends to get hit pretty hard. Uh, It's, you know, 38 innings this year with an ERA that is, uh, you know, very close to five and skills that say, yup, that's who he really is. You know, there's a, you know, it's a fly ball profile that gives up home runs and the control has been a little bit better this year, but the strikeout rate is down. It seems like, you know, he's continuing to sort of, alter his mix and his profile and try to find something that works, but there has not been any evidence yet that there's a combination that works there. So unless something changes, I am, uh, I'm going to stay pretty clear here.
0: At the same time, they lose Crick from the bullpen, which is going to reshuffle that. Uh, situation, which has already been shuffled by the injury to Liam Hendricks, Kendall Graveman's now the closer, but there's a bit of a shamaz going on behind him, and one of the names that got re- mentioned in the write-up by Rick Green in playing time today was that Ronaldo Lopez could move into some higher leverage situations.
4: Yeah, you know Lopez is <clears throat> always had sort of an interesting skill set for the bullpen, and you know they finally gave up, uh, you know I, th- I think it was a couple years ago on the idea of you know, him starting and have, you know, moved him into this relief role, which is not really a high leverage role as much as it's a, you know, a multi-inning kind of role. I think about half of his, his appearances are more than an inning and it seems like maybe he's finally taking some, uh, you know, fi- finding his footing in that role. You know, he's been pretty good over the last, uh, you know, month or so with, uh, in his last uh, five, five innings, he's got ten strikeouts, and you know five or six straight scoreless appearances. So, given that the whole bullpen totem pole here has sort of been shoveled, shuffled with um, Graven moving up to the top with Hendricks out, you know I, I think Lopez has a chance to step into that. Uh, you know, primary setup role, if nothing else, due to some of the attrition here and and his recent success.
0: He's got four wins. He's only got one start this year, so I don't know if he won it, but he's got at least three vulture wins that we know of, and if he moves up the pecking order a little bit, he could even be in line for a couple more wins. 362 RA, a 379 expected ERA, so he seems right on. His skills seem to be uh, a good match for his performance. I don't know, depending on your league depth, of course, but I think all of a sudden, Ronaldo Lopez could be worth a speculative bid this weekend if you have the space on your roster, your rules allow, and so on and so forth. Ronaldo Lopez, who knows, right? He wouldn't be the first borderline unsuccessful starting pitcher to become a pretty good reliever.
4: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's interesting. The one thing we really haven't seen from him is we haven't seen his... Velocity and strikeout rates jump as you would sort of expect when he, after giving up starting pitching, right? You know, he was, you know, a, 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 a kind of erratic strikeout, erratic results, good strikeout totals, you know, raw starting pitcher. And a lot of times when you see that guy go into the bullpen and focus on throwing his hard stuff more, get, away, get rid of his secondary pitches, et cetera, the strikeout rates and the velocity to the jump in the short bursts. That hasn't really happened, and to your point, I sort of wonder how much of that might have had to do with the fact that you know he was sort of living in a swingman role and you're know, getting pulled out of the rotation, out of the bullpen to make spot starts and that sort of thing. Maybe putting him in a true setup, seventh, eighth inning kind of role, more one-inning pop will finally unlock that sort of reliever skill surge. Um, if, if that happens, he would get interesting pretty quickly.
0: I always thought of uh, Ronaldo Lopez as a starter his whole career, but he really hasn't been. 2018, 2019, 65 starts in 65 games, and then in the short season, eight for eight. But since then, nine out of 20, one start this year out of 24. I think that maybe Ronaldo Lopez is unwillingly or unwittingly becoming kind of the. the model for the modern pitcher where you do what they tell you and you go where you're told and you perform in the way you have to and you try to keep things on an even keel because as you said his dominance rate has been 8.6 between 8.2 and 8.6 in every year of his career but one and uh, there's no big premium in strikeout rate there's no big premium in velocity from the move to the bullpen it just seems to carry on carrying on and there may be some value in the ability to to do what you do without going in there and overthrowing or without going in there and trying to be a different guy.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, again, you know, not using him as the one-inning, 15-pitch, go-air-it-all-out guy. He's been a little more than that, and they've kept, you know, he's been more of a, you know, 20 to 30 pitch, like you said, occasional start. You know, he's not the... He's not the mop-up guy, but you know he's a guy they try to use for somewhat longer stretches, and it, it's kind of a hybrid role. But you know, in this age of short starts and you know one inning relievers at the back end, you do need somebody to be that bridge in the middle, and he's been that guy, and he's he's been somewhat effective. So uh, you know, I don't think there's been a been an over, overwhelming urge to change things or try to reinvent him again because he's kind of finding his way in this role. It doesn't seem super exciting compared to what you thought he might have been as a starter. But, you know, it's a it's a role that these teams need to fill.
0: And finally, Ray, one of our new guys, Zach Larson, has a piece this week in the rotisserie gaming section of the HQ site and the piece is about how to choose which players to drop when that sometimes awkward choice comes up. I thought it was a really interesting and useful article, and he provided uh, BaseballHQ.com subscribers with a new tool they can use to figure out and make those decisions.
4: Yeah, I like this one a lot as well. Um, it was kind of topical for me. Um, I, saw, I think you probably saw that Tout Wars put out a query this week about whether or not you should cut or keep some injured guys uh, who you know, or look like they're going to be out for a while. This piece was kind of reminded me of that in it. But the, but the great thing about it was rather than just out wars asking, you know, the population's opinion about what would you do with those guys? Zach kind of came up with a framework here for, you know, and it comes with a spreadsheet that says, you know, here's how long the guy has been playing as a regular, here's how long he's going to be out and here's his projected value. And, you know, his ownership percentage, and you can fill in a bunch of cells on the spreadsheet like that, and it kind of burps out um, you know, a, a number you can use as a comparison between a couple of guys you're looking to cut. Like, for instance, um, you know, one guy I was looking at last weekend was Tyler Stevenson. And you know, I don't really want to cut Tyler Stevenson, if he, but he's going to be out till probably you know, the all-star breaker close to it. And you hate carrying an extra catcher, right, because you don't want to take zeroes. But tying up a bench spot on a catcher was, you know, was kind of painful. Last week, my roster situation was so bad that it was it wasn't so bad. It was pretty easy to hang on to Stevenson and at least buy some time. But now I'm going to use this tool this weekend to try to weigh the merits of cutting Stevenson, you know, versus one or two other guys on my team as I need to fill other needs. So, uh, you know, it was timely for me, and I'm I'm, I'm actually uh, haven't read the article. I'm looking forward to, you know. Downloading the spreadsheet and actually tinkering with it in a few, week, few weeks this weekend and uh, trying to put some structure around these decisions. That can, that can only lead to better outcomes.
0: Yeah, I think that's, a, that's why it's going to be a, such a valuable addition, I think, to people's toolkits. And the coding behind it is actually open source. So if you're familiar with Excel and don't mind digging in there... Um, Zach has set it up so that you can tweak some of the settings and move in and move stuff around and, and change it to suit your own league or your own beliefs about what constitutes rosterable versus non-rosterable. It's a really excellent thing, and and it's well worth looking at. Uh, as usual at BaseballHQ.com, something new practically every week, and, uh, and it's a real— interesting thing and i'm glad that we get a new guy who starts with the uh with the team and right away makes a contribution by hitting a solid ringing double if not a home run
4: yeah and i love the philosophy of it because we have a couple of other things like this too uh you know uh brent and uh, matt cedarholm put together a spreadsheet tool that lets you load your team pitching staffs in and download all of our starting pitcher matchup scores so you can easily see all your starting pitchers in a, in a league for the given week and make sure that you when you're making your start set decisions you're paying attention to the matchup scores and of course um, Ed DiCaria came out on opening day with uh you know his fantastic uh, fab spreadsheet that is designed to optimize your fab bidding and you know, have you leave less fab on the table too um uh, in, in your weekend transactions so this uh this who to drop spreadsheet is uh you know folds very well into your uh into your folder of Excel tools that you can use for uh, managing your roster and setting your lineups. It's uh you know, it's, it's definitely a, uh, a, another step toward, you know, we're not automating your league decisions, but like I said, we're putting a little more, a uh, little more scaffolding around them and a little less fly by the seat of your pants. Right.
0: That's right. and, I know that there's people who say, well, with all these tools we get, uh, RotoLab was early in on the thing, and those of us who built our own drafting sheets and and now more granular tools like the ones that we're talking about, and people argue, well, eventually it's going to be automating the entire process, and then you might as well not play. It just becomes a a game of who can find the best tools online to to make their decisions for them. And I think the mantra at baseballhq.com has always been, don't give the guy a fish, teach him how to fish. And and now we're letting them build their own fishing rods. But at a certain point, it's still up to you to go in and, and mess around with the tool and understand how it works, figure out what the inputs are going to be, which is really important and, uh, and use the tool to aid your decision-making not to replace it.
1: That, I, that's exactly right. I, I actually had a, uh, somewhat testy Exchange in our customer service inbox a couple of weeks ago with, I think, uh, not a current subscriber, but a prospective subscriber who is basically asking for the mega tool for what you're talking about, right? Like, do you have a tool that will tell me who to start on my entire team this week? And I'm like, no, I don't.
0: (laughs) What would be the (laughs) point? That's what I would ask,
1: And And he says, can you recommend one? And I'm like, no, I can't. (laughs) And then, you know, the way these customer service tools work, right, is like after I, you know, the conversation concluded. He got a you know, rate the interaction with your support agent thing and sent like a really nasty gram about how, like, I didn't give him the answer he wanted. All he asked for was a tool. And if, if we didn't have one, the least I could have done was point him at somebody who did. And I'm like, you're asking me to you know, give you something that like, you know, slices your bread and then like, toasts it and butters it for you, right? <laughs> and well, eats that it. And
0: don't Sorry. You'll
1: make a million dollars. Exactly.
0: Right. Uh, Mr. Murphy, I'd like you to recommend a good perpetual motion machine.
1: Yeah, totally. What do you I mean? mean? Have you stopped full fusion yet? Well, what, what's the problem? It's lunchtime. <laughs> <long> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly right. Well, Ray, it's always interesting talking with you. It's always fun, and I'll talk to you again next week.
1: Good stuff, PD. Looking forward to it.
0: Ray Murphy is co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site. And of course, he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotoballer, Rotographs, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Ariel Cohen coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Another great article at BaseballHQ.com will be the Facts and Flukes Spotlight. Analyst Greg Pyron will be digging deep into the surprising $13 5x5 season being put together by Milwaukee left-hander Eric Lauer. And of course, don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire, plus all our other usual great stuff, National and American League news, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. It's Jason Collette, next Friday, on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Baseball HQ
2: Radio. (laughs)
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Roto Baller, Rotographs, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Ariel, welcome back. Glad to be back. We talked earlier about uh, the nature of risk management and risk accounting, and that's kind of the underlying principles behind gambling. Casino gambling, sports gambling, all run on a sort of parallel track to the insurance business as a Calculation of risk and a way to make risk pay by setting one risk off against another, but it's really been com- becoming much more prevalent. As we all know, you watch a ball game, you're going to see probably 50 gambling casino ads of one kind or another, bookmaker ads. What do you make of the influx of gambling into baseball and into the sports environment in general?
2: Well, I'll say a few things. Uh, first of all, uh, to, to to be honest, I'm not really a gambler. I, at least I don't play the DFS game. Uh, I don't like to bet on the short term bets in general because they're one off. Now, of course, you can say, well, Ariel, if you make uh, a season long worth of short bets, isn't that the same thing? And in many respects, that's true, but you also have time to make all those in season bets. Um, so I-, I generally tend not to play it. You know, I'll, I'll make a long term bet for this season, like uh, an over under win total. Uh, I-, I don't do that often, but, you know, for fun, what the heck? Uh, You know, gambling is a problem for some. There, people do get addicted and really can lose their life in it. So, um, it's not for everybody. You know, you have to do have to be careful. Just putting that out there. Um, I'm also a baseball purist. I like watching the game to watch the game. So, I generally do not want to bet on games. I just want to enjoy it. But I understand if people if people do because it's part of the fun game. Uh, And certainly, I don't care from a money standpoint if people want to bet great uh you know obviously the DraftKings and Fanduels are making money because they they know how to beat the spread always um so i don't you know they want to make money great i love it when when governments do that so the new york state lottery i love it when people play great it means that it's just less tax dollars that i have to pay because more of the budget comes from the new york state lottery so so that's fine um but yeah i, I you know i'm I, I get annoyed by some of these ads. I think there's too many. It's too much of an influence. So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit bothered by that as well. Uh, you know, in terms of, of the gambling, though, I will say, though, that it is hard to win in the long term unless you're what's called a power user. You know, so talking about what I do in insurance, the reasons why insurance companies function and the reason why they make money is because they don't make single bets. They make lots of bets. When uh, Geico insures a bunch of cars, They don't insure 10 cars or 15 cars. They insure tens of thousands of cars. And because they do that, and auto is one of the most predictable lines of business, we can actually predict the total aggregation of claims for a year to within about 2% usually. Like 70% of the year, we can actually predict within 2% of the the expected dollar amount. It's crazy. Auto is one of the actual uh, uh, best uh, predictable ones. Um, and it comes from the aggregation of everything. So, when you have these power users in gambling who, you know, if they're setting lineups for gambling, they're making hundreds of thousands of them. They're automated, right? They'll lose on half of them, but they'll win on the others. Uh, they can beat the system more than you on the little guy. So, unless you're willing to be one of those power users, you're at more uh, behind the eight ball than you think, right? You don't, the odds are not 50 50. The odds are actually worse against you because of that so you got to be careful on the on these dfs as well um it should be for fun it should be for fun it it should not be a way of making money unless you really are devoted to it that's my advice i would give on gambling
0: and the thing is i've never found it to be fun Uh, i used to work in a casino i was a roulette dealer and i can tell you that you know for every three or four people who were out there that were just having fun. They'd throw $20 into the pot and play until it was gone and then walk away grinning because they, you know, got to be James Bond for 15 minutes or or whatever the case was. But most of the players at the table were sitting there grim faced, like they had, they were really sweating the outcomes and they just couldn't seem to not play. And so anybody who thinks gambling is fun, I, I think. Maybe they need to look a little harder at it. I'm not saying some people don't have fun. It's certainly entirely possible. But there's a, a an old quotation, Ariel, that's variously attributed to Voltaire and Adam Smith, and some others that uh, gambling is a tax on the innumerate or on the stupid, as Voltaire is alleged to have said. And it the reason that he said that is the the only reason that it works is because people don't understand what's going on when they put a a bet down on the reds to win
2: yeah i mean uh the gambling the kind of gambling that i like is uh playing poker with my buddies um but i don't treat that as gambling i treat that as fun if i'm putting down 20 dollars for a tournament for the night or 40 bucks or whatever it is well that's my money for fun for the evening if i go to vegas um you know and i say all right i'm gonna put 100 bucks down on the day and you know use it up as it goes if i lose 100 well that's my cost of entertainment. Uh, I, know I, don't really, I don't really do it for money. Uh, you know, I, I used to play the NFBC to try to make money, and I thought I had a big advantage. I had the ATC projections, uh, you know I do well, uh, and it worked, and I made some money back then. Nowadays, because I'd say out of the 15 teams, you have maybe 13 of them who know what ATC is, use it, incorporate it, at least know. It's harder for me to find an advantage. Um, I find it harder and harder to win. Uh, Maybe I should consider not playing it or at least identify that it's more for entertainment than for actually trying to win money, right? So when you don't have the absolute advantage, it's hard to make money. So you should just be aware that, uh, you know, play it for entertainment more. If if that's really what you want to do and you have the advantage, go for it. Uh, But it's hard to make money unless you're serious and have the right system.
0: Yeah, and I even wonder about the use of the word system. I think sometimes can be a little dangerous for people because a system implies that it works. You know, we have a system to run. Well, I guess we have a system to run healthcare and that doesn't work. So maybe they uh, maybe they understand that not all systems work. But the other night, uh, a month or so ago, my uh, my wife was watching one of these uh, uh, bookmaker ads during a Blue Jays game. And, and she says, I don't understand how this works because they, they put in the money line, they announced the money line for that night's game and one's minus 100 and the other one's uh, or minus 110 and the other one's plus 125 or whatever. And she says, how does that work? And I explain and, and she says, well, obviously you just want to bet the underdog every single time. And I said, yeah, well, so you'd think, <laughs> but every so often the underdog is going to win and you're going to make a, a premium, but more often he's going to lose and you're going to lose your money and it's going to be out of proportion. And she says, well, I don't understand what you mean. So I set up a spreadsheet for a month's worth of games, 51 games, actually two months worth of games involving the Cincinnati reds. And I said, you know, you can have the reds to lose every single time. Cause at the time they were losing pretty much, <laughs> pretty much every single time. And the opposite side of the bet will be the other way. And I gave each, there was 51 games. So I gave each player $5,100. So there's 10,200 and through, what are we at about 40 games now, the, uh, betting the since the Cincinnati opponent is down by about 16% because Cincinnati started winning some games and the teams that were betting against the Reds are at plus 570 which is about five points the big winner has been the casino it's up uh, 570 units out of the 5100 so they've yeah. they've quietly helped themselves to about 9% of the of the funds and it's not over yet by the time it's over i imagine it'll be a full 10% and that's the part of it i think people don't understand is that they think that the losers pay the house and the winners collect the cash. But in fact, the losers pay the winners and the winners pay the house.
2: Yeah. And, you know, when casinos set odds or or money lines or whatever, they're not actually setting it for what they think the probability of a team winning or, or not is. They're setting the line to what they think they're going to attract bets on both ends. Right. They want the same number of people betting on both ends so that it doesn't matter. They make money on the margin. Right, if if let's say they put some kind of line, and everybody bet one way, right? They could stand to lose money. They want to make it so that whatever they're indifferent to the outcome because they got money coming on both sides. So you know, odds are not actual probabilities; they're market, they're assessments of the market, and that's why you'll see the line change like uh, in a Super Bowl. Oh, they set the line for this. Well, a couple of days later, they change it. It's not about what the probability is. It's about how the money is coming in. And if they see there's too much money coming in on one side, they try to push it a point, you know, a, a point over this way so that they'll get more money coming on the other side.
0: You know, when I was in the casino business and and being a roulette dealer, I talked with my pit boss one time about the the nature of the game. And, uh, and at the time I had a vague idea what was going on, but he explained that the the layout of a roulette table has, there's 36 numbers plus zero and double zero, but they they play as though the zero and double zero don't exist as far as setting the odds. So you win 35 to one if you hit a number right on, but the true odds are 37 to one, and that's where the house makes its money. And then he told me something that's really interesting that not a lot of people know about roulette. The whole game of roulette was designed by Blaise Pascal, the uh, French mathematician and theoretician. And a big part of the how the thing works is the layout of the table. He deliberately set the layout of the table so that you had to place physical chips on the on the number that you wanted to play, but if you were sitting down at the far end of the table, you couldn't reach the 1 2 3 4 5 6. And the guy sitting at the 1 2 3 end couldn't reach the 31 32 33 34 35 6, and so on. So there's a geographic spread. And that was by design because Pascal realized, as you said, what you want to do is get one chip on every number or an equal number of chips on every number, more or less, because then you scoop in all the the losing chips, you pay the winner his short share of the, of the proceeds and on goes the game. And every time the layout is evenly stacked, the house is going to make about 3% of whatever the, the total betting is.
2: Yeah, well, the, the house wants to in, in, endorse uh, diversification because the way that the odds are set, there's a small margin on each. So you just want to make sure it's all diversified so that well, you just realize the total margin. I mean, if everybody put a number uh, on zero, double zero, one through thirty six, doesn't matter for the casino what comes up. They make the money. They don't want everybody stacking it on number 19 and number 19 hits. Now they lose a bundle. Right. Yeah. That's uh, that's the way it works. I mean, look, look at the lottery. Yeah, it's great! Everybody picks a different number. <laughs> it's fantastic,
0: and they pay off way short of the odds of the. We have yeah. <laughs> a we have a lottery here. I think the the actual chance of winning is 140 million to one, but if you win and they they charge you five bucks for an entry, you win Fifty, 50 million. So e, e, if the entire thing is set up so that you get an even spread of numbers, which is pr- pretty much guaranteed because there's so many. Uh, options, you know, if there's 56 numbers to choose from and you're choosing seven that they, they collect in, I don't know, 150 million per draw and they pay out 50 for the winner plus all the yep. lesser prizes. And every time there's a draw, they make a hundred million bucks because they can't not make a hundred million bucks unless everybody piles into one number. <laughs> and then, you know, even at that, even if there was only one player and he got it right, he'd still lose money because the, yeah. the, uh. The odds are stacked that way. It's a it's a really interesting uh, situation that if people understood it more, I think I think they'd play it less. I think lotteries might be the exception though, Ariel, because the amount that you win is very very large if you win, and the amount that you put in is very very small. And I think for that reason, it's almost justifiable to throw a, you know, five bucks a week in on the odds of maybe one day you get a $10 million payout or a $50 million payout. What the hell? And in the meantime, you're only out five bucks.
2: You could also give the five dollars a week to charity, which to me is a better use of your money. Uh, But those who want to play the lottery, God bless. It just means less money that I have to pay in taxes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I don't think it does I think they add to the to the take but you could be right uh, back to fantasy baseball you had Jason Collette on Beat the Shift your podcast earlier this month and one of the interesting topics on your agenda was when is it a good time to start thinking about punting categories what conclusion did you guys reach
2: uh, we had mixed reviews on that uh, I think uh, Jason was of the opinion that probably too early after two months to start punting uh, I'm more on the side of Yeah, at a certain point, if you realize that there are more points to gain somewhere by doing something, you can do that. Now it's hard to punt certain categories, so you know it's it's obviously harder to do than others. But yeah, uh, at a certain point, you know you need to realize what the deficit is, and you need to pound it. Um, I always tell people it's not about punting always; it's more about marginal categories, right? You you know getting a zero in a category. But if everybody else has one, two, three in the quantity, why would you do that? It's Three easy points, right? If three other people are punting saves, you should at least make sure you're above that threshold. Uh, it's about the distance between you and another. If if categories are very tight together, that's a very meaningful category for you, even if you're at the bottom of that pile or if you're at the top of that pile. Oh, oh, I don't need any more homers. I'm in first place. Yeah, but the, the guys are right behind you. Uh, so at this point in two months, I think the conclusion is, Maybe if there's an option, tilt a little bit more uh, to a certain category and others. Don't go crazy. Uh, but you should be aware. Continually monitor monitor how close the categories are and at the point you want to punt. Uh, you'd be ready to just jump right at it and, and throw the categories around the way that it makes sense to make the most points in the aggregate for you.
0: And Todd Zola and I have talked about this in the past, but I'll ask you about it too. I think people misunderstand the, the difficulty of gaining points in the uh, decimal categories, especially on the pitching side, and they uh, underestimate the possibility of being passed themselves because they move backwards. There's It's easier to move in those categories than people think.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you have a bunch of disastrous outings, even in August, you could go for a windfall. Um, you know, don't assume, well, how much, you know, it's, it's so many innings compiled already. doesn't make a difference. Well, it, it's harder to gain because, remember, you're compiling innings on the denominator. But if you put earned runs on the top, that goes really fast. Uh, and, of course, we know ERAs get higher as the season goes on. It's getting into the summer. So everybody's ERA is going to fall. Uh, you just want to not fall as much as others. Uh yeah, it's it's something that you got to protect all season long and I I never like throwing those pitchers who yeah, they'll jack up the ERA but they get you a lot of strikeouts. There's other ways to make up the strikeouts, I think, always. Uh and 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 you can still protect your ERA.
0: And of course, these discussions tend to focus on leagues that allow trading because you can if you have a surplus in stolen bases, you can maybe trade that surplus for some help in saves or some other category and it's a win-win for you. But uh, in leagues that don't have trading, then the only way you can manipulate these categories is to go into the free agent pool and swap out a guy who has one set of productive skills to get a guy with a different set of productive skills in different categories. And I think that's going to be quite a lot harder.
2: Yeah. I mean, the deeper the league is also, um, it's harder, right? If there's less players that are available to you to do that, Great. In a 10-team league, you can do it more because there are more valuable players that are rosterable that are floating around the waiver wire. In an NL-only 12-, 14-team league, you really can't find that. So, yeah, it it gets harder and harder. And, of course, the deeper league you are, it's more about the playing time, right? If you're getting guys who are consistently playing, that's what it is. When you're drafting, don't draft for upside as much as aggregation of playing time. If you want to take a look at who's doing well in your league, I guarantee you, whoever has the most at-bats and whoever has the most innings pitched, they're doing better than everybody else. Uh, So it's about compiling, especially in those deep leads.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's that's something that you should take into your draft, the idea of compiling those uh, at-bats and innings pitched. Because during the season, again, especially in deeper leagues, it's going to be very difficult to make up the ground that you've lost by drafting too many guys who are not going to have enough plate appearances. And to me, at least on the offensive side, Ariel, uh, you can tell me if you think I'm right or wrong. I think it's more important on the hitting side because amassing innings is not quite as important as amassing at-bats or plate appearances. Because of the there's two ratio categories in pitching versus only one in hitting, and that means there's four c- compiling categories in hitting. And the only way to compile is to have good players. And the corollary of that is if you draft or purchase Jose Ramirez and Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton for you know ninety dollars total in your auction leagues, you're really going to find yourself in trouble later on because you just even though they're per plate appearance production is very high there aren't enough plate appearances by the guys behind them to make up the the gap that you're going to create
2: yeah you're right on both accounts what in the draft is that the stars and scrubs approach doesn't work as well for deep leagues because you need to compile the playing time and it's about the aggregation but uh, as well as it's different on the offensive side than the pitching side you know a bad day for a hitter is what an O for four I mean, how many over 4s do you have in your regular lineup every week? Uh, all, all the time. But a bad outing for a pitcher, what, seven runs in four innings? Yikes. Uh, you can be hurt more by a bad performance. So you have to be a little bit more selective on the pitching side as opposed to the hitting for the reasons you mentioned with the ratios and how a bad outcome can more adversely affect your team's aggregate.
0: Right. Uh, somebody put it once on Baseball HQ Radio. One of my guests said, the thing about those pitching categories is – you can move backwards, and so can your opponents, but you can't move backwards in, in home runs. You, like You just can't. You can be passed and move backwards for points, but you're not going to actually move backwards in the number of home runs or RBIs that you've amassed to date.
2: That's correct. That's correct. And so that's the fun of this Roto-Baseball is that different categories operate differently. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, it is. I once went into a league and we were talking about changing all the categories to ratio categories and cooler heads prevailed because uh, you start thinking that you open up the league to all kinds of gamesmanship when you talk about, uh, you know, you're getting people who understand math an opportunity to exploit the idea that they don't need to amass playing time. They just need a bunch of guys who get good ratios. And the only way to overcome that is to set a plate appearance minimum and innings pitch minimum. And then you're defeating the purpose anyway. I think that's all, uh, it's all really interesting when you're talking about how best to set up the competition, but I don't think it matters as long as everybody's playing by the same rules.
2: Yeah. To me, you know, give me the league rules and I'll adapt to it. You know, I, I, I happen to play a lot of five by five Roto. Because I'm used to it, and that's the league format I, I play in the most. But the truth of the matter is, I enjoy playing in new formats. It gives you a different way. It's a, you have to think of the new way to win, right? Part of the winning is developing strategy. Right? If everybody's doing the same thing every year, well, you already know what works. But the, the new thing is there. M- my idea for leagues to combine the old traditional five by five, but yet yet adding some nuance. How about we make leagues six by six so that you take the same 10 categories on the roto side you do. But every year, somebody can offer a new category. So maybe you have you the winner from last year, uh, give me another category. And I don't know, maybe they choose slugging percentage. Or maybe they, for pitching, they choose hold. Or some random category, whatever they want. But this way, you get the traditional 5x5 five five in there. But you add a little bit of a nuance every single year and it makes it interesting because now you have to figure out, OK, now here's the new rules. What player is good? How are the values now updated because of the new rules? So I, I kind of like that idea of, of adding in a little bit of a flavor and it should vary every year. Right. So the next year, maybe somebody swaps in and, and uh, quality starts or innings pitched or uh, you know what, whatever you want to do um, or doubles, uh, triples, I don't know, anything, anything. <laughs> uh, ne- uh, so th- that's my idea. I ho- hope that takes off, starting from this
0: podcast. <laughs> yeah, hit by pitches—the the, uh, the category that everybody loves to see because then you can cheer when a guy gets hit by a pitch. <laughs> everybody in your around you at the ballpark goes, "What's your problem? <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> I just moved into first place and hit by pitch." Um, I knew a, a guy who played in a league. This was many years ago, where they did something like what you said, and what they did was the winner of the league in year one. In year two, he could pick to replace two of the categories with other other categories. And if they all liked it, they kept it. And then you could move on and, and somebody would have to replace it. And over time, the one that I remember that they changed that they liked was they... They uh, stopped doing home runs and started doing extra bases so that uh, the amount of bases you had minus the amount of hits. So all, all your doubles and triples and home runs all counted for you in a counting sense way rather than only the home runs, which I thought was a really good advantage because there are a lot of really good ball players who hit a lot of doubles, maybe the odd triple, and but they don't hit a lot of home runs. And so they're not valued in the fantasy format the way they are in real baseball. Guys who hit lots of doubles are valuable players.
2: Yeah. I also value the fact that there should be a standard format so that, you know, when you're everybody's talking about fantasy, well, this is a, a, a player's value. This guy's better than this guy. You need a, a general sense. Uh, you don't want too many of these fluky things, outlier things. But that's why I say make it six by six, just one outlier category, one different pitcher, one different hitting uh, so that you keep the flavor of the standard talk. But yet you add a little bit more nuance every single year.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Ariel Cohen from Rotoballers, Rotographs, and the Beat the Shift podcast. I've been a guest on that show, and it's always a lot of fun, and I can highly recommend it, especially when I'm on. And Ariel, I, I like to end up these interviews by talking about some boons and banes. These are players who are going to be good performers the rest of the season or not so good performers. Uh, let's start with your boons, players who look like good value for the rest of the way in the American League. Who's a batter who could be a boon?
2: I'm going to go with Alex Verdugo. Uh, I was just listening the other day to the Under the Radar podcast, and uh, they were more of the lines of you should sell on Alex Verdugo. But I actually think he might be uh, interesting to roster. Um, He's at the hardest barrel rate of his career at 7.4. His home-to-fly ball rate is in the fives, which seems pretty unlucky as his career rate is 11. Um, His 7.4 barrel rate is higher than Manny Machado's this year. Francisco Lindor, Marcus Semyon, so pretty decent. Um, his batting average, uh, uh, he is a batting average player. His batting average is poor, and mostly because of Babbitt, which is his lowest at of his career at 263. He's been a 314 lifetime Babbitt guy. Verdugo scores a lot of runs. He also has a very unique profile where he gets a few steals, a few homers, a few average Uh, and runs average run steals there aren't a lot of people who dabble in that together so it's a unique player profile helps you immensely in your team's aggregation more than you know you know and they're batting him in a good spot he's batting fifth in the order last night he went three for five with a homer uh i think this guy is going to turn it around a little bit and he's definitely undervalued on your roster going forward
0: in the national league who's a batter who could be a boon
2: so I'm going to go with somebody who's performing well right now, but I think it's going to stick. Dansby Swanson for the Braves. This past month, he's batting 377 with five homers, five steals, 21 RBIs on the Braves surge. Hoping the Braves don't catch my Mets, but a lot of it has to do with Dansby Swanson. Um, his component metrics are, have been pretty consistent. Yes, he's got an inflated BABIP, so his lofty 295 batting average for the season will come down a bit, but his power has been consistent with the past. He's actually running more than he usually have. The Braves have underperformed for the year, so you're you're going to get actually higher production for the team in general going forward. He's a guy I think you should stick with. He's I don't know why people don't like him, but every year he's undervalued. He's now a $32 roto value for the season. We talked about buying high. He's a player I would buy high on.
0: Over to the mound. Who's an American League pitcher you think could be a boon?
2: I'll do another buy high with Tariq Skubal, who's currently earned nineteen dollars to date. Uh, he's got a two-seven-one ERA and a one-zero-two WHIP. His ERA estimators all agree; they're all sub-three. He's one of the guys that we thought would break out this past this season, and he certainly has done everything to that effect. Uh, he really has not shown any luck in his luck matrix metrics. Maybe his homer-to-fly ball ratio is a little bit low at six point five, but At the same token, he's also cut his fly ball rate down. It was about 50% a couple years ago. Now it's at 34. So you can, even if he does get a little bit more back to league average homer to fly ball rate, it's still going to be less homers than usual because he has meaningfully taken down his uh, ground ball to fly ball approach. His strikeout is the same, but his walks are way down. That's how we know he's in much more command uh, of a pitcher. His profile is excellent. And to be honest, he hasn't gotten a lot of run support so far from the Tigers. I think that he's going to get a lot more run support. He also goes seven innings almost every single start. When you do that, and you last seven innings, you're going to end up with more decisions. Uh, he's got the second highest pitching award in baseball at 2.4, according to fan graphs. So he's a buy high that I think that you should stick with.
0: I really like Tariq Skubal, and I imagine he's going to be much higher in next year's drafts than he was in this year's drafts. The problem is you said that Tariq Skubal gets deep into games and he gets more decisions, but that still leaves the problem, it seems to me, that just, to get, just getting a lot of decisions is only half the battle. You need a team that's going to score some runs if you want to get the wins that result from getting a lot of decisions, and they don't score runs.
2: Uh, sure, that's true. So if he was pitching on the Dodgers obviously he would get a lot more decisions. Uh, He got a lot more wins. So being on the Tigers, he will get less. But even if you're on a bad team, going seven innings versus five innings, continuing on a good team still will get you a lot more decisions. Look at like Marco Gonzalez over the years. He's had a lot of wins over the years. He's played for Seattle, not a good team, but he's lasted long into games. So the extra two innings of playing, even on a bad team, far outweighs, uh, the effect of pitching fewer innings on a good team.
0: And I think just the fact that a guy gets seven innings into a game means he's pitching very well because they're very quick on the hook now in Major League Baseball, as we all know. So just the fact that his manager says, hey, let him stay out there means he's doing well and he's restricting the runs being scored against him, importantly. So maybe Detroit doesn't have to score as many runs as you might think to get him a win. Uh, over in the National League, Ariel, who do you think is a pitcher who could be a boon?
2: I'm also going to mention a uh, buy high player, but it's, I'm going to use it to point out something. Uh, Zach Wheeler, he is an example of when a full season stat line actually masks his true talent level. So if you look at his ERA right now, and by the way, you, you got to act quick. If you're going to trade for Zach Wheeler. Now his ERA is 2.84. That looks really good. Two starts ago. His ERA was three three starts ago. His year to date ERA was three, three eight. Um, with Zach Wheeler, the first three starts of the season were awful and they were purposely awful. He had a late start with spring training because of recovering from an injury. And so instead of having extended spring training, the Phillies said, just pitch, whatever the hell happens, happens. He threw three clunkers to start the season. Since then, 142 ERA. And that's even with an unlucky 308 Babip, 0.95 whip. If you don't think that Zach Wheeler is like a top six, seven pitcher in baseball, you should be trading from this point. Do you know who was the major league leader in innings last year? That was Zach Wheeler. He's giving you length and he's giving you an amazing thing. He almost won the Cy Young last year. Uh, he's better than his year-to-date stats indicate. So I brought him up just as an example of don't just look at year-to-date stats. Do a little bit more of a narrow filter because you're going to miss some players who threw clunkers at the beginning of the year, who had some bad outings, maybe rust, maybe injury, maybe cold, whatever it was, uh, but have been better going forward.
0: Over to the Baines. These are guys who you think are going to be uh, disappointments for the rest of the season, shall we say. Uh, in the American League, again, we'll start with a batter who could be a bane.
2: I'll start with Jesse Winker. I had high hopes for him this past year, but he actually looks really awful, and the truth is that the Seattle outfield might have a playing time crunch. Maybe Mitch Haniger comes back, uh, and that could spell some less time for Winker. Um, they're trying to get him going. Uh, they, they traded for him. They're, they're trying to bat him leadoff now to get going, and It really hasn't. He's really lost all power. He's got a total 94 WRC plus. He's got a negative war. Uh, He's not a player that I think is going to turn it around in a meaningful way. And certainly he's not the player that we paid for in draft this year. So I think he's a bane.
0: In the National League, who's a batter who could be a bane?
2: Another guy with high expectations, Dylan Carlson, got a 252 batting average. He's hitting a lot more grounders. His homer fly ball rate is in decline. His barrel rate is 5%, which is down from 7% last year. His exit velocity is down. He's not stealing. He's not showing much power. He's underperforming. And I don't see uh, an over – I don't see a big reason to say, well, he's going to turn it around. Uh, I I would just bet the under at this point. If people are still, oh, I'm still waiting on Carlson, I would bet the under. So for me, he's a bane.
0: Back to the mound in an American League pitcher who could be a Bane.
2: I'm going to start with X met Noah Syndergaard. He currently has a 3.53 ERA, but looking at his Sierra, which is an ERA estimator, it's at 4.39, which is almost a run higher. This is Noah's highest walk rate of his career, and it's also his lowest strikeout rate. That, folks, is a bad combination. Uh, his strikeout rate is only 16.4%. Uh, I mean, you know, don't, I, don't we all remember Syndergaard as a 100-mile-an-hour strike-throwing strikeout machine? His strike rate's never been below 24. It's at 16%. His K-BB, minus something that I use on a very quick fix to look at top pitchers, is only at 10%. Uh, and he's been lucky in the home run regard. His home to fly ball rate has been 7%, which is below his career average of 11%. Uh, so he's been lucky. Uh, I think Noah Syndergaard is a pitcher to avoid. He certainly wanted to avoid pitching against the Mets uh, this weekend, so I would avoid picking up Noah Syndergaard.
0: Quite a big uh, hard-hit percentage for Noah Syndergaard. I was looking at him the other day. I think it's up around 37 or 38% of balls in play, which is a good sort of 10 to 14 points higher than his past record. I think that injury uh, really, really harmed Noah Syndergaard more than it often does some of the other guys. And he's really struggling to get back into form. And at this point, I think there has to be a real question if he is ever going to get back to the kind of form we remember from his salad days with the Mets. So who's a national league pitcher who could be a Bane?
2: I'm going to go right back to another ex-Met who decided to leave us. Uh, this one's a little personal here, uh, Marcus Stroman. So I tweeted out, uh, not directly to him, but I tweeted out, uh, sometime earlier that, uh, you know, I'm looking at his risk metrics, uh, ATC risk metrics, and he, he won't be very bad, but he probably will not be elite. And he tweeted back with uh, somehow, he, I don't know how he, he got that tweet, but he tweeted back with him with a scary picture of him and his dog saying, I'll show you guys. So that was a little, a little interesting. But uh, sorry, Marcus, uh, I don't see you as a player to have the, down the stretch. Your, his swinging strike rate is down to 9%. Now, his strike rate is actually up to his best year ever, but I think that's actually lucky, and I would go by the swinging strike rate, which is pretty bad. And by the way, his best strikeout rate, it's at 8.5K per nine. It's not even that great in today's day and age. He's giving up homers this year. He's not getting ground balls. Remember, Stroman, his value was that 50% ground ball rate, or or even more than that. He's throwing like almost 55% one year. Now it's down to 40% ground ball rate. If you're not striking out all that many batters in general, and your ground ball rate has gotten 10% lower, that is a bad sign. And he's on a bad team on the Cubs. He's actually not pitching deep into games. He's only had two outings this year over five innings. Uh, he's a bane for me. Marcus Stroman, and, uh, please don't sick your, uh, dog on me. That would be really bad.
0: Thanks. Let's hope Marcus Stroman's not listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he may send a killer down around your place when you're out on the mound, uh, in softball and, and Marcus Stroman will be standing there saying, uh, uh, I'll get you Cohen. And then, uh, sick his dog on you. You know, what is interesting about that ground ball performance? I can remember not that long ago, I guess the, from the mid 2010s up till about maybe 2018, he was 65% ground ball rate. And then in 2019 and 21, he didn't pitch in 2020, down around the mid-50s. Now he's down to 42% ground ball rate, which is not only not great, it's really just league average.
2: Yeah. I mean, he he's actually had ground ball rates up above 60. His best one was 64%. And Marcus Stroman could thrive and survive. Anybody could th- survive. And, and do well with a 62% ground ball rate. Imagine you're, you're throwing uh, almost two thirds of, of your batters are ending out in a, uh, it, it, who put the ball in play. It's going right in the ground. You're going to have great success. Uh, But when that gets down below 40 and you don't have a dominating strikeout rate, right? You you can do well with, with a low ground ball rate if you're striking out that many people. But if you're not, uh, you're getting into that territory where you're going to be giving up hits. So that's where Stroman is heading. And I don't see that correcting, Anytime soon, maybe the ground blow rate will pick up a little bit, but that could also come at expense with the strikeout rate. He's probably overdoing it to get more strikeouts. Uh, and not even—he's not even getting whiffs. Right, his whiffs are down. So I just don't see the direction of him turning positive.
0: Another aspect of the, the whole trajectory issue is he gave up all those points about 11 or 12 points from 2021 in his ground ball percentage and virtually none of it went to fly balls all of it went to line drives which is probably even worse than having it go to fly balls because line drives are hits what 70 percent of the time and most fly balls if they're not really really well hit are outs and line drives are usually not outs so this uh, this is not a, a good profile for a pitcher especially for one that we expect to have that very hefty ground ball uh, trajectory profile that he no longer really seems to have.
2: Exactly. I mean, he's never had a fantastic whip, uh, but now his ERA is five three. Uh, I, I can't see this. Uh, I can't see this going further. I I don't think he's going to have a five ERA rest of the season, but I think he's going to be over four uh, and not going to give you quality gaps. So does that help you? Does not help you in shallow leagues. Does it help you in deep leagues? Uh, sure, it's probably better than replacement, but not that thrilling. Even even if right uh, it yeah. it's it, it maybe even a no, even in, in 15 team leagues. Right. Do I want to have a five year eight clunker with no strikeouts. I don't know. Maybe I can piece together somebody free off the waiver wire and stream for the same thing and pick two star pitchers and get more strikeouts in a week. Uh, it just just doesn't actually add up to anything for me.
0: Yeah, he's one of those kind of pitchers where you can have a two-start week and still not get a game's worth of strikeouts because there are just so few. I, I, I totally yeah. agree with you, and I, I would go even a step farther to say I think Marcus Stroman, for fantasy purposes, and I'm not talking about real baseball, which is a different calculation, but I think Marcus Stroman barely is replacement value at this point.
2: Yeah, I mean, what 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 in his profile, uh, even like a 15-team league, says, yeah, that that's above replacement? I mean, he's giving up runs. There's a high whip. There's no strikeouts. Like, uh, you can replace them on the waiver wire with with a better, uh, j- just somebody who's facing a, an easier team, right? You, if they're replaceable on the waiver wire by a streamer who's just as good a value or better, that means that your fantasy value is zero. Uh, so that that's what I would say about Stroman's profile this year. Uh, and you should probably stay away from him, and he's my bane.
0: Yeah, all you guys who do projections and uh, dollar valuations start with the concept of the replacement player, the guy who's at the absolute bottom, and he's worth zero, and everybody else scales up from there insofar as uh, dollar values are concerned. And I think probably if if you stack ranked them, Marcus Stroman probably would be closer to the zero mark than anything else that I can think of.
2: Yep, I pretty much agree.
0: Ariel Cohen's Boons, Alex Verdugo of Boston, Dansby Swanson of Atlanta, Tariq Skubal of Detroit, Zach Wheeler of Philadelphia, his Baines, Jesse Winker of Seattle, Dylan Carlson of St. Louis, Noah Syndergaard of the Angels, and Marcus Stroman of the Cubs. I remind our listeners where they can keep up with Ariel Cohen.
2: Yeah, You can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. You can read my stuff over at Fangraphs Rotographs, over at Rotoballer atc projections hopefully we'll have rest of season ones up mid-season and of course you can listen to me on the beat the shift podcast uh check that out i do that with my buddy uh Reuven guy comes out weekly
0: all right ariel i was hoping this would be fun and interesting and it was very fun and super interesting it always is i enjoy talking to you so much that i'm really grateful that you take the time thanks very much and we'll talk to you again before the season's over i'm sure
2: Thank you so much, and good luck to you in the rest of your leagues for the rest of 2022.
0: Uh, the injuries are killing me, Ariel. What can I say? Uh, thanks very much again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Ariel Cohen joins us from Rotoballer, Rotographs, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Another quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But one more item from the site I wanted to mention is in the Rotisserie Gaming articles on the site Zach Larson, one of our new analysts, looks at a disciplined method for making player drop choices. I mentioned that when I was talking with Ray. And that and the other items I've mentioned today are only a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers add it all up expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business
1: baseball
2: hq radio
0: and welcome back to baseball hq radio pd here time now for our regular commentaries my extra innings comment is coming up and leading off, it's the frequent flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at San Diego second baseman Esturi Ruiz is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
5: He currently leads the Biders in stolen bases as batting 363 with a 1145 OPS. Do we have your attention yet? Dynasty League managers, especially you, take note. San Diego Padres' second baseman, Esturi Ruiz, currently has 44 steals, not in his career, but in only 57 games in 2022. Let that sink in for a moment. We're not quoting 44 steals from 2021, he stole 36 last year, but we are quoting 44 steals in June 2022. Wow. Apparently, after topping his entire 36 stolen base total for 2021 with 37, Ruiz was promptly promoted to AAA on June 7th, where he swiped six more. In fact, it wouldn't be surprising at all if Ruiz stole three more bases by the end of this segment. That's what happened on June 15th, where Ruiz stole three gratuitous bases against Las Vegas. Factor in enough raw power to belt 13 home runs in only 57 games, combined with his aforementioned sizzling three hundred sixty three batting average and otherworldly eleven forty five OPS on base plus slugging, and the numbers appear to be video game numbers suggesting possible regression. Maybe even probable regression if the outlandish lightning-quick pace and lofty numbers become unsustainable. That's why 23-year-old San Diego Padres' second baseman, Estori Ruiz, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still available in your league. But act quickly, at this pace, he won't be available for long. Signed by Kansas City as a free agent almost seven years ago, July third, 2015 to be exact, Ruiz was subsequently traded to San Diego two years later, July 24, 2017, in a swap that netted Brandon Bauer, Ryan Bookter, and Trevor Cahill for the Royals. Not surprisingly, rumors are swirling that the Royals would potentially like Ruiz back as part of a prospective Andrew Benatendi trade. According to East Village Times reporter James Clark, a local source in San Diego, the Padres are already in exploratory talks with the Royals for Ben Attendee, who is scheduled to become a free agent at the end of this season. Mr. Clark conveyed on June 9th that although the two sides, San Diego and Kansas City, are reportedly in the early stages of talks, San Diego is looking to get a deal done sooner rather than later suggesting that maybe you too should be looking at getting a deal done sooner rather than later to acquire 23-year-old San Diego Padres second baseman, Asturi Ruiz, who is also currently capable of playing every position except pitcher, catcher, and first base. He can do it all as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for extra innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about my upcoming Facts and Flukes Spotlight analysis of Toronto right-hander Jose Barrios. Jose Barrios is usually thought of as a reliable mid-rotation fantasy starter, quietly knocking together stats that... Won't win you a league, but probably won't lose you one either. But as a fantasy manager with Barrios on my roster this year, he's been pretty hard to take. I was curious about Barrios, so I asked our facts and fluke spotlight manager Stephen Nickrand if I could do the deep dive. I found out that Barrios isn't as bad as he's sometimes looked so far in 2022, but that he's also not quite as good as he looked in 2021. In all, he's being this year what he's always been, a mid-rotation caliber starter with a low-to-mid-teens 5x5 value profile. Through his career, Barrios has been generally kind of effective, but his game-to-game record has been marked by inconsistency. His 30-game rolling PQS average stays pretty tight to his career average of 2.5, right in the middle of a 5-point scale, but his 5-game average looks like the Alps that game-to-game inconsistency also turns up in his ERA history. An optimistic fantasy manager might see a cyclical pattern that could generate some predictive value, but the pessimist, and the realist, might reply with the standard disclaimer on mutual fund ads, past performance is no guarantee of future results. It certainly hasn't been for Barrios. The main culprit in 2022 appears to be that Barrios is just allowing more contact, and a lot more hard contact, in particular on his four-seamer and changeup, and to a lesser extent his sinker. The unfortunate effect is amplified by Barrios also using his four-seamer more in 2022, in fact more than his other pitches, which is the reverse of his excellent 2021, when his four-seamer was actually his third pitch behind his curveball and sinker. So we know the issue is more hard contact, but we still need to know why. The first place to check was velocity, but nothing stood out there. We also checked spin and movement metrics, nothing much there either. But location? Aha! Barrios' four-seamer in 2022 is catching quite a bit more of the strike zone. His change-up has spread all across the strike zone. To be specific, we're seeing four-seamers middle up in the zone, curveballs low but staying in the zone, and sinkers up and arm side, and the change-ups pretty much everywhere. Maybe we shouldn't assume Barrios' 2022 struggles indicate a general or lasting decline in his fantasy production, but maybe we should. The most seemingly obvious fix for Barrios would be to change his mix back to 2021's model, and or just focus really hard on locating his pitches better so that he's less in the heart of the zone. Easier said than done, I grant you. The research for this report was frustrating, as there just didn't appear to be anything more than the consistent inconsistency at the game level, which comes and goes without a discernible pattern. After the core research for this article began, Perillo spun two straight PQS dominant starts, which cut his ERA to 465 from 473 and his whip to 124 from 133. He doubled his year-to-date fantasy 5x5 earnings, yeah, to just $4, but still, and his BPV rose to 95 from 84. But even in those successful starts, Barrios cost himself dearly with inconsistency. In the second start, he got three straight perfect innings, then started the fourth with another easy out. Then he hit a guy. Then he got another easy out. Then he served up a four-seamer that started on the inside edge to the left-handed hitting Adley Rutschman before running back towards the arm side, just enough to end up squarely in Zone 2, down the middle slightly above the waist, where Barrios is giving up more than 111 total bases per 104 seamers to left-handers. Rutschman homered. Later, Barrios tossed two more perfect easy innings, then started the seventh with a waist-high inside hanging curve meatball to Ryan Mountcastle. He also homered. It's pitches like these that arrive without warning while Barrios appears to be cruising that make him a frustrating fantasy starter. They also make him a very questionable candidate for DFS play and for streaming, even when he has strong positive game score forecasts. You just never know. Not long ago, he laid a PQS-0 egg against a struggling Angel squad, then followed up five days later with a solid PQS-4 against a hot Minnesota lineup. All that said, you can stay fairly confident that if you stick with Barrios, you'll end up with a journeyman season. Just push him out there for every start, take the sometimes bad with the occasionally good and the mostly meh mediocre. The Facts and Flukes Spotlight article should be on the site anytime now. Lots of charts and graphs that blow out some of the stuff I've been talking about here. It's behind the paywall, but useful content usually is. For Baseball HQ Radio, I have my extra innings comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 17th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 23 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Ariel Cohen from Roto Baller, Rotographs, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Ariel is one of the smartest and most capable projection guys in the game and an interesting guy to talk to, as I'm sure you'll agree. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our market watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Pods, Pocket Cast, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com Thanks again for listening We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Jason Collette from RotoWire, as well as all the usual great stuff National and American League News Analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries That's Jason Collette on next Friday's Full Edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio Talk with you again next Friday, and for now, so long.
1: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.